this episode, Justice League number four, cover dated August 1987. Welcome to the fourth episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, I'll be featuring a different guest host. Today, my co-host is someone I've never had the pleasure of chatting with, and hopefully after we're done recording, I'll still be willing to talk with him. Some might call my co-host the John McLaughlin of Radio vs. the Martians, or Turbo Man of Podcast La Vista. Folks, please help me welcome to the embassy, Mr. Mike Gillis. Hey! Welcome to the embassy, Mike. Hey, sorry. I immediately strip into the door and step on your line. <laughs> Well, you know what? Here at the embassy, we're pretty loose and casual that way. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's great to revisit this comic again. It's fun, I'm, isn't it? Now, it is. Before we get going, I have to ask, Podcast of La Vista, Arnold Schwarzenegger? I, I listened to the first episode today, which was entitled Why uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I get it. But why don't you tell the folks at home, what what's that about? Casey Doran, who's my, I guess he just, he's my, my life partner in podcasting. He's my <laughs> tag team partner. Casey and I have a shared love of the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger that's not entirely sincere, but not also entirely ironic. We love these things both for the purpose for which they were made, but we also love them because they're just so bonkers and absurd. And we want to sort of celebrate these movies, uh, all the muscles, the charisma, the crazy accents, catchphrases, explosions, and also movies and stuff that don't have as many of those, like Jingle All the Way or Hercules in New York. And we're basically doing a movie-by-movie master's course in just absurd explosions, bulgy Austrian muscle bodybuilding guys, and blowing stuff up in monsters. (laughs) Well, going in, I was... I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not a Schwarzenegger kind of guy. And I was thinking, well, I don't know. But by the end of the episode, I, I found that I was nodding my head along with almost everything you said. I can't believe it. I mean, you, you converted me. So I'm hooked. I, you've got me. I am in for the show. I can't wait to listen to every episode. I'm looking forward to it. Now, since this is a Justice League comic and Batman is in it, it seems to me that there's a connection here, wouldn't you say? Oh, just a little bit. I mean, I guess Arnold would call him Batman. Yep. So during the podcast, you know, if I feel it's necessary, I might just have to bust out with something like, if revenge is a dash best served cold, then put on your Sunday finest. It's time to feast. Everybody chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kill the heroes. So we might, you know, we might hear a little bit of that during the show today, if it feels necessary. It's always necessary. Allow me to break the ice. So I went to the comic book store today, and I picked up number one of a brand new series. Guess what it was? Oh, uh, this is Rebirth Month, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah well, is... pulling back the curtain, Rebirth came out today. Okay, that is today. I'm I'm a little out of it. I haven't done monthlies in a while. I've been a trade guy. So I basically, if something blows up on Facebook, I know it came out. <laughs> So everyone is freaking out about Rebirth and Captain America right yes, now. Yes, they are. <laughs> this, will, this will be a little time capsule for folks who hear this in about a month. <laughs> well, I picked up number one of Scooby Apocalypse. Now, people at home might be thinking, 
why the heck am I mentioning this, and what does it have anything to do with Justice League? Believe it or not, it does, folks, because the creative team on this book, check this out. Plot and Breakdowns by, oh, Keith Giffen, you might have heard of that guy. Dialogue and More Dialogue by J.M. DeMatteis. Oh, wait a minute, this is sounding familiar. Howard Porter, Pencil and Inks. Now, he didn't do the Justice League International book, however, he did draw Justice League 3000 and Justice League 3001. You also get Jim Lee is involved in the book to some extent, as based on concepts, but it is essentially the crew from Justice League and Justice League 3000 doing a Scooby-Doo post-apocalyptic story. I can't wait to read this. Yeah, this is going to be interesting, and I'm willing to give it a try. I mean, it's, there's something about that kind of pulls, you know, you have that sort of knee-jerk reaction to any kind of reboot, but I trust the people working on it. And also, there was another kind of horror reboot that Archie did with Afterlife with Archie recently. Oh, yeah. And it was really good. It was really, um, what was his name? Something Sakasa. It's, he's got a hyphenated last name, but the guy who did the art is Francisco Francovilla. Oh, wow. Who, yeah. Yeah, did like Black Beetle. He's done a bunch stuff whatever your initial reaction is to kind of an odd kind of recentering reboot sometimes a creative team gives you a shot at it because sometimes something like archie versus predator turns out to be really good (laughs) that's true that's true and and i have a soft spot for scooby-doo because as shocking as this may be shag is not the name on my birth certificate and uh it did actually there was a nickname given to me because of affiliation with scooby-doo Oh, really? Oh, okay. Are you going to reveal your real name, or is this going to be like a Doctor Who thing where we never find out? It will be a Doctor Who thing. You'll find out when I'm on Trenzalore, okay? Okay. (laughs) Before we get too much further, because we've drifted pretty far from the Justice League topic, let's take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode of the show, we're going to select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually it'll be tied to this month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. I've picked out an, a book to discuss. Mike's picked out a book. Mike, would you like to go first? Absolutely. What you got? I'm, I'm going to do something a little interesting and ask people to take a really big bite of something. And I will promise you it will be worth it. I am going to recommend the Superior Foes of Spider-Man Omnibus Hardcover. Ah. So one of those big phone book size things that you can use as probably a clue weapon. <laughs> and it's uh, written by Nick Spencer with art by Steve Lieber, cover artist Marcos Martin, who we've recently saw in Daredevil, which is awesome. Page count of 376. Cool. So... It's it's totally worth it. And here's what In Stock Trades has to say. The Spidery Sleeper Hit series is collected in one stylish superior volume. Boomerang and his team of villains have a plan and the means to pull it off. But they're about to learn the hard way that you can't steal the head. <laughs> that's literally head of the cyborg mob boss, <laughs> Silvermane, without severe repercussions. Now, Boomerang has been targeted for death. But what does the Beetle know about it? Is Overdrive a rat? Can Shocker and Boomerang repair their relationship? And a speed demon can't do the time, he shouldn't have done the crime. Now the foes are up against the world's most dangerous thing, the truth. Manhattan descends into a chaos as the gang war begins. Lives are lost, feelings are hurt, and cars' keys get misplaced as the foes take on all comers. (laughs) And the main reason I want to do this is this is another dysfunctional superhero team. And if you're a JLI fan, you love dysfunction, you love fun, you love humor, and you also love these awesome second and third string characters who are trying to live up to the legacy of an older team. In this case, it's a Sinister Six, and these guys only have five members. (laughs) Now, so, obviously they're the protagonists, but are they villains or are they trying to be heroic? Oh, they are straight up villains. Okay. And what I love is that Boomerang 
spends this entire series just weaving this elaborate web of lies to try to convince these people that, no, 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 we're, we're about to hit the big time. We're about to hit the big time. I'm not turning you all in. I didn't just betray you. And he is just such a scumbag. <laughs> but you kind of get into his head, and it's amazing how sympathetic and how just, I mean, he really is, to use the word, irredeemable. He is an awful human being. And you get to see these second-string characters who really want to be taken seriously. But most of the time, they can just take jobs for people like Hammerhead or the Chameleon or Kingpin or any of these guys. So they're always kind of bouncing in and out of other people's stories. And it's a lot of fun to watch the second stringers in that same sort of way. Like they're trying to be taken seriously. I, I love this book so much. And it really is. Again, in stock trades, the original price of this thing, $49.99. But in stock trades has it 45% off, $27.49. And it's totally doable. You want to buy this book. It's actually more expensive to buy the three trades that collect all 17 issues that you can get just in this one place. And you will love it. It'll last longer because it's hardcover. And you will not regret buying this giant book. It is so good. It sounds like a complete hoot. It really does. And I, you know, this is during the Superior Spider-Man era too. I've I've seen this thing on the in the shops and in various places, and I've heard a lot of the buzz on it. And somehow I got sucked into reading some of the Superior Spider-Man comics. I, I didn't expect to have any interest in it, and found I really enjoyed reading them. They were fascinating reads. And so this one's been buzzing around in the back of my head. But now you've given me sort of the interest in pulling the trigger and reading that thing finally. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is so good, and it it uses continuity in the best way, which is that it's a springboard for a story it's not an impediment to a story that if there's some weird bonkers thing and of course marvel comics and any kind of superhero universe has just plenty of it they grab onto it like the missing head of this cyborg crime boss (laughs) which at one point is being traveling around on top of a remote control car it's really amazing and it really made me love the shocker who is just the weirdest looking guy he's like the second he's not even like an electric bad guy he's just like the vibration bad guy that spider-man has who wears this weird quilted outfit right the quilted and then that unfortunate name and oh yeah he's just such a sad sack and he (laughs) just he keeps getting screwed over so many times in this series and he's he's kind of dumb and he's the one who probably believes boomerang the most and he's the one who gets the worst of it oh my god uh beetle it's a new beetle so it's a legacy character Mm. and she's actually has a background in business and she's trying to run the gang like a business and boomerang's constantly having to fight off the fact that she's more competent than he is and clearly like she wants to like hand out like oh here's a piece of paper that says here's our goals here's our branding goals here's our financial goals (laughs) and it's just like just to run robert's rules of order it is just so good i love it to death well that sounds like a blast all right i'm that's on my definitely to read list Mine's a little more straightforward with Justice League. I picked a Booster Gold trade paperback because we're discussing Justice League number four. So I picked Booster Gold Past Imperfect trade paperback. And the creative team on this, Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. This takes place after Justice League Generation Lost. Booster has had a hard time of it, and this covers issues 32 through 38. You know you're going to like it. You know who the writers are. You know them writing Booster is going to be a total win. I've read most of these issues. They're an absolute blast. Art by Chris Batista, Pat O'Leaf, and some other folks. Cover by Kevin McGuire. I mean, you can't lose, folks. Right now, it's on in-stock trades. It normally goes for $17.99. It is 45% off. It is only $9.89. It's 168 pages, full color. And again, you know the creative team. You love them. You know the character. You love it. I don't even need to waste any more of your time. Just go buy it. 
It's a good run. It's actually the the series that convinced me that Booster was a good solo character. Well, it starts off really strong, you know, with Jeff Johns doing the series, and then Dan picked it up. Dan Jurgens picked it up, and it was still good. And then these guys picked it up, and it just it they kept it going. It was a solid run, and honestly, I think it could have kept going if it hadn't been for Flashpoint. I th- oh God, and I gotta say, Batista is really one of the most underrated artists in comics. That he has a really clean style, and he's really expressive, which is the kind of creator, kind of like Kevin McGuire is. You need somebody who's great at face expressions for a character like Booster. And he just nails it. He's just good. And the issues are a lot of fun. Absolutely a lot of fun. So, all right, folks, for this and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, as we're, as you're listening to the episode and you decide you want to tell Mike that, I don't know, he's incredibly wrong, or you want to tell him his fa- your favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, or you have a different opinion on Justice League, hit us up on the social medias, folks. Use the hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. That's for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We will find your comments. We'll argue with you. We'll tell you why you're right. We'll tell you why you're wrong. We'll become friends. We might even become besties. Or you can hit me up on Justice League International Podcast, which is on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just search for either one of those terms. You'll find it. Not a problem. JLI Podcast. And I really want to get feedback from you guys because this show is all about building a community of online JLI fans. So far in the previous episodes, if you listen to the feedback section, I mean, it's there's such an outpouring of people that love this series. The whole idea is to bring as many JLI fans together in one place so we can talk about how much we love the comics, nitpick it, nerd fight it, whatever, but just be together as JLI fans and have a blast and show our love and appreciation and just build a community together. All right, Mike, this is your first time on this show, and so far I'm thinking it's probably going to be your last. But anyway, oh. what? well, let's see if you can... Well, I'm going to steal pens, then. See, <laughs> damn it. See if you can pull your game up. What is your own personal origin story with the JLI? How'd you discover the book? How'd you fall in love with it? This book, uh, JLI, was actually my gateway drug into the DC universe. Mm. That Up until that point, I was pretty much a hardline Marvel kid. There's really kind of been, in the course of comic book fandom, I've always had two ongoing titles that were like my book, my comic book. The first one was the original X-Factor with the original X-Men, and the second one is JLI. And I was an X-Men fan, I was going into the early 90s, and... I really don't know what prompted me to pick it up, but I picked up a copy of Justice League Spectacular Number 1, which is actually not part of the Giffen run. It's actually the first thing the, that uh, came out. It's yeah. the postscript, if you will. Yeah, it's like the first thing of the, the run that Dan Jurgens did right after. It was like the first issue of that. And that was my first one. And from there, Justice League International, to me, wasn't something I bought every month. It was something I scrambled to get back issues of. I would always go to my local comic book shop and buy up the ones that they had whenever there was a convention i was always going to grab them up there but it became my new favorite book and it actually transitioned me from being this kid who was nothing but marvel to being a nothing but dc kid for like five years and then i discovered like preacher and bone and then i became sort of an everybody kid from like the 2000s onward but it was the book that everything that i love in dc came from this book i got into green lantern because of this book i got into every other dc concept that i enjoy first started out with Justice League International. It was just like a game of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> kind of moving outwards, I read something else like, who's that character? And I started getting into that. And this is even like pre-internet. So if I didn't know something, I'd have to hunt it down. And I didn't know a lot about these missing issues that I had, except in the letter columns. And it would tell me that something big had happened in this or that issue, and I would have to go hunt it down. And it was really kind of exciting, because I didn't always read these stories in the issue, the, the order they were published. I It was always a constant surprise, and it was... 
such a different book than the stuff that was coming out in the early 90s. And I think the the 1980s, of course, the issue this came out, and number four, is this was coming out at the same time, you know, in the wake of things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, and so much of comic books were getting sort of dark and postmodern. And I really think that this title was kind of an antidote to that, that it was something on the other side of the scales, that this could be fun, this could be irreverent. It wasn't this sort of angry, hyper-serious kind of thing that was getting more and more popular. In fact, it kind of thumbed its nose at that stuff. And it actually made me, this series, a pickier comic book reader, but a much more well-adjusted comic book reader. (laughs) So I could enjoy things that were fun. At the same time, I could enjoy the serious stuff. JLI was one of my seminal comic books growing up. So really, it sounds like what you do is you just transitioned your love for Cameron Hodges in X-Factor for Elrond. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, it kind of moves from one bureaucrat to another. There's always that figure in the background. Of course, Elrond didn't become a supervillain, though he took over the body of a supervillain. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. (laughs) Ah, the 90s. (laughs) So who was your favorite JLI characters? Now, if you can, you rattled off a bunch of books you love. If you can, kind of narrow it down to one to to three. I've got two runners up, but I've got one big answer. Um, One of them is Martian Manhunter. And uh, Michael Bailey said this in one of your last episodes. He said that he uh, realized that a lot of the affection that he had for this character was based on the JLI, and it was kind of bleeding out into other things, that the idea of him being sort of the, the heart, the den mother of the team, really came from here and I think that's absolutely true for me too I love Martian Manhunter I think he's a great character and it was really sort of seeing him have to interact with this just dysfunctional fun group of people I love how you said that he had to because that's how I always remember him is just like so frustrated with everyone and just being like fine do whatever do I don't care just do it yeah, he had to be the grown up in yeah, the room exactly. uh, I, this one's a cheat I'm going to say it's a cheat I admit it right off the bat Which, but it's the friendship of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold oh, the, bro- I, the bromance I count them as one character I think of them as like the Hawkeye Pierce and BJ Honeycutt of Justice League <laughs> International that they're in stressful situations but they use humor and quipping as a way to deal with it and I mean because it is there are some uh, really funny parts of this series but a lot of times people forget that things like the Despero series and the breakdowns that ended it off are actually really dark and I think the, it's the alternation between things that are light and things that are dark that make the dark stuff that much more effective because I think if everything is just hyper serious and gray all the time that you get desensitized to it and I think the fact that these characters had dark storylines made those moments like super shocking and people like Booster and, and Beetle really kind of kept that stuff palatable where you're not just like oh my god I'm going to open my wrist well, I think it's fair to say they probably had a still in the basement of the JLI embassy and, oh, and god, I remember yeah. the time Beetle had to smother a chicken so yeah oh, working as repo men trying to start an island resort there's like all these great stories with these guys but my all-time favorite character is, and I don't know what this says about me, but Guy Gardner. And, <laughs> it explains a whole lot. Oh, man. It, it was actually my gateway into loving all the Green Lantern concepts and characters. Because when I say like favorite characters in DC is Green Lantern, I kind of mean all of it <laughs> collectively because it's just such a great, wonderful, crazy concept. And what kind of blew me away is that as a kid, I had the superpowers figures. And to me, Green Lantern was just one dude. And I had no idea that there were other Green Lanterns. I didn't know that Alan Scott exists. I didn't know the Green Lantern Court existed. I didn't know who Liesl Pawn or Tomar Ree or Kilowog or any of these guys are. As far as I'm concerned, there was just one dude who had a ring, and he carried a lantern that I lost really quickly into owning that figure. <laughs> and But he was just this one dude. So one of the things that made me finally pick up Justice League Spectacular is who 
who the hell is this dude on the front who's dressed kind of like Green Lantern, but doesn't look like Green Lantern, but he has kind of a cool costume? Chains, and, baby, chains. Yeah, it's his his belt is just the weirdest thing in the world. It's like <laughs> everyone has a different idea of what it is. Same thing with his gloves, yeah. the way that there's like a belt on them. But yeah, he's got belts on his boots too, which normally seem gaudy, but they don't. Uh, but yeah, moon boots. Uh, but yeah, he's he's just such an interesting kind of Howard Chaykin esque costume that I was just like, okay, who is this this guy? I didn't even know that was a pun at the time I picked it up. And I I kind of love it because he's so unlike any other character in the fact that everyone was doing the Wolverine guy. There's one really angry guy on your team who likes to sit on the roof and brood and maybe he like thinks out monologues or writes in his journal. <laughs> and he's always struggling with his dark side and occasionally fights with the team leader. I mean, this is like a trope that every superhero team has it, where in real life you just you'd be more like what guy actually is, which is he's a jerk. <laughs> and He's like the guy on Facebook who's always posting all these things, and you're just like, oh, my God, this guy with this again. And you're just it's, – it's like he's the guy who ruins Thanksgiving. He's the guy who is the reason that you have all of these HR seminars about appropriate workplace behavior. He's – and that's what's so great about it is that he wants to be the Wolverine of the team so badly. But instead, he kind of struggles against that because the things that kind of kick him in the ass over and over again and, and make him trip over for his own feet are him trying to be this sort of Sly Stallone ideal and he gets in his own way of actually being a great Green Lantern a lot of the time and what I love that Giffen and DeMatteis do is that they give these little windows of humanity onto this guy every so often that I know the the funeral issue for I don't, I don't know if I spoil a 30 year old comic <laughs> uh, but issue 40 has a character there's a funeral for a character on the team and you get this little moment of vulnerability from him. And you get to see him in truly dangerous situations where occasionally people rely on him, that he drops the jerk act and you occasionally see him step up. It's not often, but those are the things that I think this book does so well, is it knows that it's not just a sitcom, that these people have a job that occasionally requires them to be serious. And I think Guy Gardner is really one of their best creations, that... They could have just done him as a parody, but he's not. He's like a fully fleshed character. And I know that other people have tried to kind of grab onto his character and pull in all these different directions, but sort of the weird combination of, of bizarre frat boy, jerk, um, he's a little bit of Biff Tannen at times. Yeah, absolutely. He's, oh man, he's, he likes needling at people. There's all these little scenes where he clearly knows he's annoying them and he can see himself getting under their skin and he's just going to dig there for a little while. Mm -hmm. I like that about him because he constantly builds the conflict. And I also think he's primarily the reason that the rest of the team doesn't hate Batman because <laughs> you have because Batman is such a dick in this series. Yes, he is. He is awful all the time to everybody, but he makes up for it by being like supremely confident and super scary. And usually right. Yeah, I, I would back down, too. It's like if I had the most powerful object in the universe, I would back down if Batman got angry at me. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's one of those things. But Guy is such a jerk that I think he distracts them. He creates this contrast between him and Batman, where suddenly Drill Sergeant Batman doesn't seem so bad. I love by the way, everything you just said is a brilliant way to sum up Guy. But I love the bits where you're saying about him being the guy in the office that everyone hates, but you can't get rid of him. He still works there, and he's causing all kinds of chaos because that's exactly what he is. 
and he does know he gets under people's skin. And he just, like you said, he sits there and digs. It's, it's a beautiful description, and it's a, it's a reason to cheer for him because I would never want to hang out with him in real life. But reading about him, I'm bowling over laughing. Everything that comes out of his mouth is like a golden nugget from the 80s. You know? It's it's funny how I, I hate to say, I really hate admitting this, but there's a part of me that really, when I was especially 12 and 13, related to Guy Gardner. Oh, probably, And yeah. a lot of it was that people, oftentimes, before Guy did anything in a situation, other people would start dogpiling on him. And I was like, I knew what it was like to be unpopular at school and have the cool kids kind of look down their nose at him. Wait, at, and even, at school, that's still not an issue for you? Because I... Oh uh, no! I've I got to the point where I just don't care. Oh, anymore. okay, that that explains. So, that. so there are things to learn from Guy Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> if you just don't care, there, there's something liberating about that. But yeah, I think that there was an aspect, or sometimes people will start ribbing on Guy before he's done anything. Sometimes he clearly deserves it. I mean, there are times that Batman had every right to punch him. I will be the first person in line to admit. <laughs> but there are a lot of times where people are just mean to him for no reason. And I'm just like, I I would side with him. And I would get angry at stuffy old Hal Jordan who wants to come and preach to him. Because wasn't he in the middle of that whole pretentious find himself phase? Oh, Hal? He, yeah, up until issue 47. That's absolutely where he was. It's like, seriously, go away, Hal Jordan. You're not fun anymore. <laughs> It's like, who are you to talk down to me? You can't keep a job. At least Guy Gardner is employed. That's true. Absolutely true. I love that you mentioned also the the more serious side that they brought out with the characters, because the humor was the perfect place to do that, because you laugh for 10 issues in a row, and then you get, like you said, a moment with Guy, or the one I always go back to is the one where Beetle gets brainwashed. Oh, God. Exa- yeah, yeah. That, that, that reaction you just had is exactly what I'm talking about. It makes those kind of moments so much more powerful, because you're used to laughing with these people, and you've fallen in love with them, and when something tragic or emotional occurs, you feel it that much more. It's it's, it's yeah. Really effective. It was a good guy moment in that issue too, because there's this moment where guy is just ragging on Oberon, but when he sees that he's bleeding, it just drops it. He's like he checks on Oberon, and when Fire comes into the room and starts ragging on him, he tells her basically get him to a doctor. I'm checking this out, and it's kind of cool to see the character drop the kind of jerk facade. Just a, well, it's not even a facade. I think it's also real. <laughs> I think he really is a jerk. But it's kind of cool to see that there's other sides to him that despite the fact that you would never want to be in a room with him for that long, it's kind of handy to have somebody like him around in a fight. Quite often your workmates become kind of like family. You know, you you don't necessarily like them. Like you said, they ruin Thanksgiving dinner, but they're still family. You're still going to take up for them. Now, if I remember correctly some previous conversations you and I have had via Facebook, because I had never wanted to speak to you before now. Understandable. I seem to recall there's another Green Lantern you kind of like. Yeah, I do. Uh, Nord. <laughs> I love Nord. And Nord is actually easily one of the top five Green Lanterns. I think people Can have a tendency... more than five? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Kilowog, Tomari, Tomar 2. It wasn't, who's it wasn't like a, a challenge. I was just asking. <laughs> okay. So what I like about Nord is I think the... I guess you could call him the Jar Jar Binks character, the guy who's there who's kind of the comic relief guy who's a little bit goofy, mm-hmm. who's not especially known for being good at his job. It's so easy to get that thing wrong, but I think they get Nort right. Mm. He's one of the few times, I mean, you get those characters like, what is it in the show Mask? It's like T-Bob or it's Snarf from Thundercats. There's always that character. <laughs> that snarf, that char- snarf. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. It just, it burns. It's like they put that character there to appeal to children, but children don't want to be that character Children want to be like Batman, you know? I think Robin is the only other teen character that people really gravitate towards, they really like. But for the most part, when you throw this kind of goofy Jar Jar character out there, nobody likes that character. 
I think what makes Nort work is Nort does the two things that they always forget to do. One is register that the other characters are annoyed by them. Because when nobody else noticed, and that was the thing with Jar Jar, is that Jar Jar never really interacts with anybody. With very, for most of the time, he's just kind of wandering around doing his own goofy stuff. Everyone else is ignoring him. And nobody else gets off like, oh my god, again with this guy. But if people do, it makes you feel like you're not alone getting annoyed at them. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like the movie's trying to drive you crazy. And the movie's like, no, no, he's funny, he's funny, you're supposed to like him. But people get annoyed at Nord all the time. The other thing is Nord is actually funny. More than being dumb, he's actually just kind of a dork. (laughs) And he will point out things that genuinely aren't really clever. I think there's a line when they run into Lobo, where Rocket Red tries to talk him down from violence and say, oh, you know, Lobo, I don't want my children to become an orphan. And Nord just says something like, well, you know, as long as your wife's still alive, they're technically not orphans. (laughs) And it's little things like that that I think really make that character work. I like your analogy of a Jar Jar that works. That is a good way to put it. And, folks, by the way, if you've heard the promo for this show, for the Justice League International podcast, our guest, Mr. Gillis, is in fact the one who wraps up the name of characters with the Nort calling out. So thank you for that, Mike. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we should probably get moving on. Coming up next, it's... Monitor Duty. And this is where we talk about other comics on the shelves the same month as this issue is Justice League that features JLI members. So this comic hit the shelves on May 5th, 1987. Cinco de Mayo. Look at that. Take a drink. And other titles featuring JLI members and the same month of May 1987. Let's run through these. All right. We've got Batman number 410. This is in the Max Allen Collins and Dave Cockrum run. So this is actually the post-crisis Jason Todd, and it's where it all begins. This is the issue. It picks up six months after Jason Todd had boosted the tires from the Batmobile, and he becomes Robin, and they in this issue they face two-face. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I This was the beginning of everyone hating him in the post-crisis version. That's exactly right. I actually have a coworker who's proud of voting to kill him. <laughs> You know what I had to deal with today? I had to take my stepson to the doctor. He's 16 years old. And what does he read in the car on the way there? The One of the few trade paperbacks he bought with his own money, Red Hood and the Outlaws. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, really? Every generation has to have their own characters, though. we got to get out of their way. So, All right, Detective Comics number 577, which is still in the Year 2 saga, Part 3. So this is Mike W. Barr and Todd McFarlane. It's that Reaper storyline, and the cover has Batman. He's sort of hugging the grave of his parents, and he's holding a smoking gun. I remember that image quite well back in the day. I was like, Batman with a gun? What? No, what, what? Yeah, seriously. And he even had a color-appropriate holster for it, too. <laughs> So it actually went with his... If there's one thing you can count on for Batman, he will make sure that everything has the same, you know, sort of blue bat motif. Well, that in Bruce Wayne is all about the branding. So oh, God, he, yeah. he never makes that mistake. It's always got a bat logo. He's, he's very clever with that. He doesn't want anyone copywriting his stuff. And speaking of The Dark Knight, he was also appearing in Outsiders number 22 this month, which featured a story by Mike W. Barr, art by Jim Aparo. Now, this is... And I've never read this issue, I'll be honest. But it's The Outsiders versus Strike Force Cobra. And I read about this team of bad guys recently in a Who's Who issue. They are completely bonkers. Every one of the characters is based on, like, one of those crazy 1950s Batman foes. It looks absolutely nuts. So that issue, Outsiders, is probably hysterical because nobody builds themed teams better than Mike W. Barr. He is is the best. (laughs) So I I actually want to read this one. Next one that came out uh, featuring JLI members. This is uh, kind of surprising because this is a big deal. Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters, number one, came out this month featuring Black Canary. 
huge book. I mean, this book changed the direction of Green Arrow forever. I, I would even say the Arrow TV series owes a lot to this comic book series. And it's, uh, it's, uh, my, every, it's very famous. It's done by Mike Grell. I think everyone knows this book. Have you ever read this book? I have. It's actually one of the few books that takes place in Seattle. That's true. And we don't, we, uh, this thing is, the thing to understand about people who live in Seattle is that we are very insecure about our town because it doesn't get treated like a big city mm. the way a lot of other places do. So when the Space Needle shows up in anything, you will hear about it. <laughs> Frequently, it just gets blown up in a special effects shot in a disaster movie as an example of it's happening everywhere. But we're just like, we latch on to that. So, you know, Green Arrow was our superhero for that time. There you go. I didn't, I never thought about it that way. All right. Go, go, you left coasters. Also on the shelves is Blue Beetle number 15. It's the Len Wein, Ross Andrew run, and it's Blue Beetle on Pago Island versus Carapax. Dr. Fate miniseries was on issue number two. So this is the JMD Mateus and Keith Giffen. Those names keep coming up, folks. I hope you recognize them by now. Anyway, this is the early days of the saga of the new Dr. Fate. So this is featuring Eric Strauss and his stepmother, Linda Strauss, and Naboo. The interesting thing about this is, this continuity doesn't mesh up with the same book they're writing, JLI. So JLI is on issue four, right? Dr. Fate is not in this issue, but he's still a member of the team and will be for a few more issues. And the Dr. Fate in JLI is the Kent Nelson Dr. Fate. Meanwhile, the same writing team is next door doing their own Dr. Fate miniseries featuring a whole new Dr. Fate. So if you're reading both of them on the shelves at the same time, you're probably scratching your head going, how do these two fit together? The way they basically explain it is that the Dr. Fate miniseries takes place after, I think it's JLI number seven or something like that. So it all sort of makes sense in, in the timeline afterwards, but... I love this Dr. Fate miniseries. It is fantastic, and I love the ongoing that came afterwards. It is awesome, guys. You should pick up collected editions of this thing, definitely. Did Giffen and Demetrius read the write the ongoing as well? Uh, Demetrius did. Okay, yes. so that's weird that they took him out of the Justice League so soon, because they were still controlling the character, so it wasn't like it was interfering with the stuff. I'm speaking off the cuff here, but if I remember correctly, Demetrius wrote it, and Giffen drew it. So it wasn't actually them together writing it, but it was one writing. Anyway, where I'm going with this is, it's quite possible that Demetrius was already working on this book when he got the gig for Justice League. Because he came in, Justice League number one was almost finished by the time he was brought in to work on it. Because Giffen had already written the script and everything like that. Or at least the first round of the script. And then Demetrius came in and, and, and finished it up. And from then on, it became the, the, the dialoguer. But it's quite possible he was already writing the Doctor Face series. Hmm. That'd be an interesting question for Mark. Mark, if you're listening, let us know. Yeah, it's, it's weird because I look at the huge turnover in the roster in the first few issues of Justice League. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, did the writers have any say on who was in the team at the very beginning? Because it felt like... Well, we have Captain Marvel. No, we don't have Captain Marvel. We have Dr. Fate. No, we don't have Dr. Fate. We have Dr. Light. No, we don't have Dr. Light. It's it's kind of funny how maybe they got them, but they didn't want them, or they wanted them, but they wanted them over here doing their separate thing, and they didn't want them on a team. Or It's kind of fascinating. I'd really love to hear the story on that. Well, I'll tell you what I do know from reading a lot of interviews. Uh, the, t- the team initially started as basically they were told, take the characters that come out of Legends. So that's where most of the team came from. And also Andy Helfer, the editor, gave them input on what characters were available, and that's who they took. Then, they, as you mentioned, Captain Marvel, they found out about six issues in, oh, whoops, Captain Marvel's just on loan to Justice League. They had no idea. They were having a blast writing him. They did not know Captain Marvel was on loan, and it got yanked away from them. As far as, like, Fire and Ice were characters that, as I understand it, Helfer came along and said, hey, these characters are available, you want to do something with them? And that's how they got picked up. So, uh, I would love to hear more details on it, but that's, a lot of it came from just who was available, and it sounds like Dr. Fate they did to themselves by changing out Kent Nelson for Eric and Lynn Strauss. But, I want to hear that story. So, I, I, please, please, Demetrius, tell us, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear it. Then, uh, also on the shelves was Who's Who Update 87, 
number one. Now, I personally have a tremendous passion for the Who's Who book. For those of you who don't know, in addition to the JLI podcast, I actually do another monthly podcast called the Who's Who podcast, where we cover every issue of Who's Who. We're just now wrapping up Who's Who 88. So we, issue number one of 87 is actually, it's a glorious issue for a JLI fan. It includes Blue Beetle, it includes Batman, includes Captain Marvel, includes uh, future members Captain Adam and Booster Gold. Well, I guess technically we don't really know if Booster Gold joins the team. We won't find out till the end of this episode. It's possible he doesn't join the team. We'll have to see what happens. But Who's Who Update number one, uh, 87 number one is a great issue. Love it. Now, continuing on, future members of the JLI, people that haven't joined yet. Oh, there's that Booster Gold guy again. Booster Gold number 19 by Dan Jurgens and Alve. It features Booster Gold versus Rainbow Raider. Of, oh, yeah. Over, oh, yeah, baby. Over some stolen paintings. Sadly, this book was only about five months away from cancellation at this point. So I don't know if the decision had already been made to let it run out to 24 issues. It always In the old days, it did always seem to be in even six-issue increments when series would get canceled. So I'd be interested to ask Dan that someday. You, usually, you know that they're throwing on the major guest stars when they're trying to save a book. And, you know, Rainbow Raider equals sales. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean... And who doesn't want a supervillain who's entirely motivated by the fact that he's colorblind? Hey, he showed up in the Flash TV series, so it couldn't be all that oh, bad. Oh. oh, man. <laughs> hey, I like that show. <laughs> Captain Adam number six by Kerry Bates and Pat Project versus, speaking of colors, Dr. Spectro. It also deals with Captain Adam's true history is nearly exposed to the public in that issue. So I'm sure Jay Jones is thrilled to hear about that. Does a, he does a Captain Adam podcast. Then Hawkman number 13 by Dan Mishkin and Robert Howell. It, now, this is sort of interesting because up to this point, the previous 12 issues, they are still dealing with the Shadow. And a lot of it was Tony Isabella. The writers turned over a bit. Dan Mishkin's kind of getting his groove going at this point, from what I understand. And finally, at this point, the Shadow War is behind them. So this issue, the Hawks actually get caught up in a murder mystery. Was this pre or post Hawk World? This is pre-Hawk World. The Shadow War miniseries was sort of Hawkman's big launching point in the 80s, or Silver Age Hawkman, I guess you should say. He had his own ongoing for a while, and it didn't take off, and then they went into Hawk World after that. So all, everything got kind of washed away in the crisis. Oh, and it was never confusing ever again. Hawkman, very straightforward. Very straightforward. Yeah, it's, it's that's simple stuff. Yeah. You want to take the next couple? Sure. Um, also, Green Lantern Corps number 215 by Steve Englehart and Ian Gibson. This is oh, Kilwag storyline where Salak, that's the guy with the pickle head and like four arms, is uh, brainwashed into thinking he's Paul Manning. I think he's in the 85th century. Something. So Something. super, super post Legion. And oh God, Paul Manning, that's basically the one where they would occasionally kidnap Hal Jordan, take him into the future, make him think he was a completely other dude and then send him back because I guess they just don't have their own Green Lantern in the future. <laughs> I, I guess. You've summed it up pretty well. It, I think kind of what it was is basically the writers just wanted to write a sci-fi tale. And so having the whole angle where he's brainwashed into thinking he's Paul Manning and has a wife and a family and, or at least a girlfriend, whatever, and then sending him home and making him forget it every time it happens is just bonkers. And poor Salek here thinks he's yeah. Paul Manning now. I, it's The thing that makes no sense is if you just ask Hal Jordan for help, he would probably help you. You don't have to brainwash Hal Jordan to convince him to save the world. Just show him the pretty girl. And of course he's yeah. there. Yeah, he's just like, oh yeah, by the way, um, you'll be staying in a home with this woman, <laughs> and uh, we need you to fight a monster. And he's just like, I'm on board. Logical visits uh, included? Yes, I'm on. Yeah. Because this is, oh god, this is during the time with a 
the Rizzio. So he was in super creep. Oh, man, that is like super creep territory. So <laughs> he would have totally been on board with a thing like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Now, you, you sort of mentioned it there. Yes, this issue does feature Kilowog, which is why I included Oh, him. I love Kilowog. He's the best. He is absolutely the best. And you're a poozer, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Oh, I love him. And then also Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, number three. This is multiple stories, lots of different creative teams. Oh, also Kilowog a little bit. Mm-hmm. Plus the seminal Ellen Moore story in Blackest Night, which is the one where Cat uh, Matui, who is the replacement of Sinestro, coming to a planet where they don't have vision, they don't have a uh, concept of color or of uh, of light. So she has to recruit a Green Lantern, even though the name Green Lantern doesn't translate. So she has to do something kind of cool. Oh, man, it, it really was the, the one that launched a lot of different Jeff Johns ideas, including Bogo, a lot of these cool Alan Moore stories. Yeah, he did, I think, out. three of them, three or four of these short stories, I mean, these little eight-page things. And, you know, John's built a multi-year franchise out of his work, basically. Oh, God, I love Alan Moore's Green Lantern stuff is really top-notch. It actually is collected in a couple places. There's an Alan Moore DC Universe trade. Uh, of course, it was put out by another publisher called The Original Writer's Green Lantern Core Stories. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're totally worth checking out. They're really amazing. They feel a little bit like the stuff that he was doing for 2001. It has that kind of vibe to it. Kevin, o- Kevin O'Neill of, drew one of them, right? Absolutely, yeah. Kevin O'Neill. I think he did the one that introduced, what is the name of the Daxamite guy? Yeah, like, yeah Sodom Yat. Sodom Yat. Uh, that, he was introduced. Also, I in think the that planet was, where all the Red Laners come from, too, I think. Actually, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That All that stuff that happens in the Sinestro core war about half of it including like the children of the white mind or something like that all of that stuff comes out of like basically two panels <laughs> of the story and it's kind of it's kind of cool there's a lot of really neat crazy sci-fi concepts and i'm a giant alan moore fanboy and there's a lot of alan moore this month well in this whole by the way in this issue itself uh you mentioned tales of the green lantern core number three multiple stories listen to the creators on this book all right alan moore kurt Busiek. Mike Carlin, Joey Cavallari, Richard Bruning, John Byrne, Bill Willingham, P. Craig Russell, Paul uh, Paris Cullens, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Kevin Nolan, Kurt Schaffenberger, Terry Austin, and Greg Brooks. I mean, God, all those. This is a real murderer's row of talent, folks. Unbelievable. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and this is one that really blew my mind. Watchmen number 11. Of course, there's the, the analog characters, the Charlton ones, Blue Beetle, Captain Adam. They apparently appear in JLI as well. But it was kind of crazy putting this in a context that you see the Green Lantern Corps stuff that Alan Moore is doing. At the same time, Watchmen is wrapping up. And actually, the second to last issue of his Swamp Thing run came out this oh, month. Really? So Jeez. it's that's so weird is because a lot of it is to me a lot of DC stuff, especially 80s DC stuff, is stuff I've gotten in trade, stuff I've gotten as back issues. So it was actually really kind of neat to see all of this stuff in a context that to me Watchmen has always been a trade paperback. Exactly. And to see it actually coming out as single issues and to think that there was a time where somebody might be waiting for the next issue of Watchmen to me is kind of mind blowing to not know how it was going to end, to know that you couldn't just marathon through this trade and I can only imagine what that would be like not knowing where this book is going and just how much it would blow your mind at the end absolutely right absolutely right and 1987 and I've said this before on the show but it's my absolute favorite year of DC Comics so many amazing ideas just exploded under the pages in 1987 and uh, these are all just perfect examples alright folks well, Mike and I, we've been talking far too long already, so we should probably go to a podcast promo break. We'll play a commercial for one of our friends, and when we come back, we're going to recap Justice League number four. Cool party! Cool <laughs> party! 
I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVersTheMartians.com. And we're back. Folks, as we go through the recap here, I want you to keep in mind that you can see panels and pages from this comic over on our website at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You'll find the post there for the show with the MP3 file, and that's where everyone will be leaving the comments and discussing it. And then beneath that, there'll be another post, which will be called a gallery post. So look for Justice League number four gallery post. You'll be able to see lots of the images, the stuff that Mike and I are going to explain to you. So if you don't have the comic handy, it'll give you a chance to sort of refresh your memory. It's time to do this, Mike. Justice League number four from DC Comics, cover dated August 1987. If you were lucky enough to buy it off the stands, folks, it cost you 75 cents, three shiny quarters. Not a bad deal. Cover by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Oh, I love this cover. I got to say, this is the best cover of this series so far. It's a pretty high bar because I really like Kevin McGuire. And I think some of the things that he does really well, body language and really expressive faces, but the layout of this cover is really good. You have Booster Gold square in the middle. He's the brand new character being introduced in this. And he is apparently standing in the in the scene of a classic Doctor Who episode because all those are filmed out of the quarry. He's... <laughs> He's, yeah, I think this is Hand of Fear, right? It really looks like he just wandered onto set, <laughs> and he's like, oh, geez, what did I do? And he's just standing over the unconscious bodies of Blue Beetle, Batman, Guy Gardner, and Captain Marvel. I almost said Shazam. You see a little bit of Martian <laughs> Manhunter in the corner, too. He is not Shazam, he is Captain Marvel. I don't care what you say, lawsuit. Um <laughs> And the, the framing device, of course, is the big bad. The guy you see in the foreground looking at him, of course, protecting you from that butt shot is the Justice League logo. <laughs> well it really is. It protects you from a really, really large man-ass shot. And I don't know. You know, it, The guy's in shape. He's got to show it off. I, I don't begrudge him that. But I really love this classic Justice League one. I know that the logo changed when they became international. Mm -hmm. I really miss this logo that they had for the first six issues. There's something really clean about it, fun and classic. I mean, I love the the one that we had before that that font stuck around for most of the rest of the series, even after Giffen and DiMatteis left. But the the framing device from that logo, it's almost like there is this spotlight, this crotch stance, this this cone coming down from the logo that is kind of putting Booster Gold in the spotlight. So crotch light, spotlight. But he is there, and it really kind of shows that he. He is the star of this issue. It's really, really well put together. Booster has a great, like, whoa, look on his face. So it really just shows he's in over his head. This is a great cover because it, it just prompts all these questions about who is this guy? What's happening? I need to find out what's going on inside. And that's what a cover should do. It just nails it. Now, I will take issue with you. You said it's probably the best cover of the series so far. I would say excluding issue number one. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the, that's the poster right. shot. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's the money shot, baby. Now, this cover, though, one of the things I love about it, and this is a little spoilerish, but this cover is sort of the opposite 
of the Kapow page in the issue. And I'll talk a little bit about it on the backside. But this cover here really does sort of give you the reverse of what we're going to see inside the comic. It's, it's really, really well done. Booster's total look of, uh, of shock, like, huh? As he's sort of whipping around is nice. It's great. Ed, I love it. it. It makes you want to know what's going to happen. Of course, the tagline at the top. And I love when the tagline leads into the cover logo. Yeah. You don't see it that much, but Booster Gold battles alone for the future of the Justice League. <laughs> And I, I love that. That's a, that's a favorite of mine. It's my same thing when the cover logo makes its way into a word bubble. That's my other favorite thing. I love when someone, like, you know, when they when in a comic, when somebody introduces themselves, like, hello, I'm Superman! Trade, you know, trademark. Oh, I love it. <laughs> always fun stuff. You can't do that in live action. You can't make that logo appear. And that's the thing that only comics can do, and I, I love it. It's that and concerned floating heads is the other thing I love. But I, <laughs> hey, I, I'm a Firestorm fan. I love floating <laughs> oh, God, yeah. So the comic opens with the Justice League sitting in their conference room, and Batman is leading a seminar on the security breach they just had. Who is this Maxwell Lord? How did he get past their security and into their headquarters? Where did he get that awesome purple suit? And how did he manage to replicate and even improve on one of their signal devices? Now, Guy Gardner, of course, is his usual charming self, and while apparently getting every last drop out of his bottled beverage... <laughs> Wants, he just wants to know when Batman is going to shut up, because he doesn't know how much longer he can stay awake. And uh, Captain Marvel, of course, being the teacher's pet of the group, scolds Guy and prompts the Green Lantern to tell him to, quote, shut up and finish his Oreos. And Batman, who... First, it's yeah, first Batman, mention of Oreos in the series. Yeah, there we go. Take a drink of, of milk. <laughs> uh, Batman, who never turns down an opportunity to threaten people, he likes to keep in practice, tells Guy that if he doesn't behave himself, he'll keep him after class, and that he wouldn't like that. Now, <laughs> Guy, whose middle name might be doesn't know when to quit, <laughs> continues to needle Batman about how not scared he is of him. Mr. Miracle, who really doesn't want to be a part of this conversation, changes the subject and updates the group about the upgrades he's made to the security system and even offers to adjust them to keep Guy out of the, uh, the headquarters. <laughs> Martian Manhunter wants to get things back on track uh, and by saying that the real issue here is Maxwell Lord. Who is this mysterious millionaire? How did he get into their base? How does he know their technology? And what gives him the right to even recruit new members on their behalf without their permission? Now, meanwhile, in the Justice League's library, which is very well stocked. Maxwell Lord in his awesome purple suit is waiting with Booster Gold and Dr. Light, who are both apparently just starting to wonder what exactly did I get myself into and what am I doing here? Booster, who was apparently really excited to be here at first, is starting to worry that this seems like the team he's been talking in that other room for a long time now. Dr. Light, on the other hand, is not happy. She calls Lord a smug fraud who lied about representing the League. Max tells her, hey... He's got a master plan for them and the Justice League, and she'll be really happy about it when it all comes together. That's too much for the Doctor, who hurls her signal device at him, which is about the size of a smoke detector, by yeah. the way. I mean, how the hell... How are you going to carry that thing on you without actually having a purse? Fanny bags. So, fanny bags. It was the 80s. And uh, storms out of the room, loudly quitting the Justice League and walking out of the series without once wearing her costume, except for the first issue cover, even once. <laughs> so that's the end of Dr. Light. Booster tries to stop her, but Max calms him down, saying, if in a really super creepy way... That, hey, don't worry. If we want her back, we'll have her back. <laughs> I know. Seriously, dude. Not even the purple Gordon Gecko suit can save you that. 
So at this point, Batman comes in with the team and he doesn't look happy. I mean, not happy even by Batman standards now. Max smiles and enthusiastically introduces the Justice League to their newest member, Booster Gold. And isn't he just, whoa, Batman gets right in Max's face. And in possibly the bravest move I have ever seen a human being make, Max doesn't even flinch. Batman's upset. You know, Max gets that. You know, he, he knows we can work this out. We're reasonable men. Batman is not a reasonable man. <laughs> Booster, at this point, is starting to feel embarrassed. He feels like he's been had. He tells Max to shut up and announces he's leaving. He's not sticking around. He doesn't want to impress a bunch of people who apparently don't want him. He's doing just fine on his own. And by the way, Max, just to stick it to him, <laughs> good luck with your master plan, guy, walks out of the room. Now that gets everyone's attention. As <laughs> Batman and John both close in on Max, and Guy very helpfully offers to torture the answers out of Max if Batman would like. Batman, you know, sometimes Guy is a. No, I was player. just going to say he's so, part of the family here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, meanwhile, Captain Marvel is sorry to see Booster Gold leave. You know, he had a really neat costume after all. <laughs> it wasn't. It is a cool costume. That is true. <laughs> so outside, Booster is sad. Things didn't work out with the league. I mean, his super career hero career in the 20th century is going pretty well. He did save the president after all. But joining the Justice League, that really would have been a feather in his cap, well, if he had a cap. And uh, just beyond he's the got, Justice League, here he's got a cowl. He could tuck it in there, probably in the back. It might be a little racially insensitive. <laughs> Uh, but so meanwhile, just beyond the Justice League security fence, a booster can see the press gathering. They've probably been called there by Max. They're supposed to witness his big moment of joining the Justice League. And now he's got an audience for his walk of shame and getting booted out. This is just great. And, you know, he briefly thinks that, you know, maybe I should just fly away. I can fly over the fence. You know, the reporters don't have to talk to me, but he decides to just suck it up and talk to them. You know, Booster's being a grown-up. Well, this may be in his the, opinion also, he didn't say it, but I'm sure, you know, no press is bad press. Seriously. And, you know, this may be the last time you see him acting this mature. So, you know, take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so just as Booster is starting to field questions from the reporters, a mysterious group of individuals are hovering around the security fence in trench coats, which is the perfect disguise and never, ever suspicious. <laughs> They, they figure Booster talking to the press is the perfect distraction. One of them, Jack, assures them that the disruptor should be kicking in on the fence just there in two, one, frack! No, no, I mean, really, it actually says that. Frack! That's the sound effect. The fence pylons just explode, and the security fence just shorts out in the middle of Booster's interview. Booster's face expression, by this way, his body language is great. He looks like, <laughs> which, which I love. He spots the mysterious people scrambling into the Justice League's headquarters and rightly assume they must be behind this attack. He springs into action, takes off after the villains. It's Booster Gold to the rescue, he hopes. Inside the base, the attack has knocked out the power. Batman remarks that their backup power should be coming on in just a second and lets Guy Gardner know that he can see him even though the lights are out and see <laughs> Guy standing in the shadows holding his fingers to the side of his head mocking Batman's famous cowl. <laughs> The power comes back online, and Black Canary notes that their entire defense system is down, and they're totally vulnerable. Mr. Miracle wonders if the press might be behind the short out. Batman wouldn't put it past them. It's then that they notice Booster Gold on the monitor running to the rescue. Outside, Booster is trying to think up a great entrance line, but only manages to come up with, Hey guys, hold it right there! It's then that he notices that our villains have shed their trench coats and been unmasked or 
remask <laughs> as King, Queen, Jack, and Ten of the Royal Flush Gang. Mm. I, I love bad guys with a theme. And King immediately invites Booster to pick a card, any card, and throws a barrage of razor sharp playing cards at him. One manages to nick Booster's leg and draws blood. Booster takes to the air, and despite the gang's initial assumption, he is not running away, but looping around to give King a flying version of the Dragon Punch uppercut from Street Fighter 2. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. There's definitely I can I can get the finger movements down for what he just did. Inside, Black Canary wants to know what is the Royal Flesh Gang? What what are they even doing here? What could they have possibly expect to gain from attacking them right now? This doesn't make sense. Batman says we can figure that out later and asks. Scott, if the security system is ready, it is. John Jones then begins to escort Maxwell Lord out of the room. Max protests, saying he'd like to stay and watch. And the Martian advises Max not to provoke him. Max wouldn't dream of it. Outside, Mr. Miracle's clear force field over the base is activated, sealing the ensuing battle inside. Batman tells the team that this is a chance to see what this booster gold is made of. They're going outside just to observe and ask Guy Gardner if he knows what that word means. God, he's a... See, that's what I'm talking about. He is a jerk. Batman is... He's starting it. And then Guy responds, yeah, it means we stand around and let gold have all the fun. Close enough, Batman says. Outside, the fight knocks Booster face first into the force field, and he realizes he's now stuck inside with the bad guys. Don't worry, King says, as he grabs Booster. He won't be stuck in here for very long because they're going to break his neck. Booster flings the king off of him, and before he can capitalize on the attack, he's blinded by a flash from a photographer's camera and clobbered as Ten throws a fist-sized rock at the side of his head, making him spit a bit of blood. Queen then gives him a football kick to the back of the head. That's really mean-looking. That's Oh, and the media is probably getting a lot of great pictures of Booster getting his ass kicked. Ten comes at him with a flying kick. He manages to catch her leg halfway in in the midair and tosses her away. Out of the corner of his eye, Booster sees Queen coming at him with a big rock in a pose kind of like Jodan Baker in the opening credits of the movie Mitchell. But just as just as the king in front of him is pulling out a ray gun, just about to blast Booster, Booster zips into the air, kind of like an Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And just as the king fires, he ends up blasting Queen and knocking her out. Booster trades some quips again with the frack too. Frack, I love it. It's like a really profane Battlestar Galactica comic. That term was already around in the '70s series. Maybe somebody was uh, feeling a little Dirk Benedict-ish. Oh, I'm always feeling a little Dirk Benedict-ish, except when he says racist stuff. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Booster manages to trade some quips with the King, who takes his gun from the stun setting to kill. Booster taunts him a little bit, and King, of course, opens fire on our airborne hero. The blasts are easily deflected by Booster's personal force field. He bought it, he said, at Kmart. What? Not laughing at his jokes? <laughs> Whatever. Booster finishes the King off with a flying knockdown punch to the back of the head as he tries to flee. Like, as he's running away. So, our hero. Um, <laughs> uh, but he's not done yet. He actually spots Ten, where she's hiding behind uh, a rock, and says that he can see her hiding. She should just come out now. Uh, you wouldn't hit a lady, would you, she asks? Well, yeah, he would. <laughs> and manages to give her, uh, this is one of my favorite shots in the book, an off-panel punch with just one panel just being like, bonk. And then you see her on the ground as she starts to fade away. Booster goes, well, you know, where he comes from the 25th century, the equality of the sexes is just a given. So, well, as he says, we can hit anyone. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you so much for explaining, she remarks as she falls down and passes out. <laughs> well, I'll take it from here. So, with the final Royal Flush Gang member down, the Justice League team, who have been observing the whole encounter, all break into applause. Booster looks up and is shocked to discover they had an audience the entire time. So, with this typical trademark brashness, he looks up the league and goes, Well then, how'd I do? Max immediately leaves to congratulate Booster, but Captain Marvel shushes him. Shh! The league stands there silent, all waiting for Batman to share his opinion. Like the attendees of an ancient gladiator match, they all hold their breath waiting for the Emperor to deliver the thumbs up or thumbs down. There's a tense panel of Batman contemplating, with the sun beaming down and highlighting his cowl. Then, the panel is repeated, but this time, Batman has made his decision. All it takes is a beautifully rendered, lopsided grin on the Dark Knight's face to tell the reader everything they need to know. Batman approves. Then, the celebration's interrupted, when Batman's face turns to shock and he yells out, Booster! Behind you! Booster turns around to see, well, we then get the kapow moment of the issue. As you turn the page, you get a full-page splash of the surprise Royal Flush gang member, Ace. Ace is hulking. He's this huge white body. It fills the entire page. Well, Booster's back is turned to us, and he's, he's sort of stumbling to get his balance. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is the reverse of the cover to some extent. Oh, it is. Booster is, uh, so he's sort of stumbling. He's looking up at Ace, and rightfully so, he quotes the bard, Dr. Sam Beckett, by saying, oh boy. <laughs> Ace then backhands Booster into next Tuesday. Batman orders the league, observation time is over. Let's move. Or, uh, how would that actually go? Observation time is over. Let's move. Something like that. <laughs> of course. Ace reveals his robotic nature with his synthesized voice and his pop-up weaponry. A flamethrower appears from his hollow forearm and makes quick work of Martian Manhunter. Captain Marvel then swoops in to save Manhunter, sharing some kind of funny lines and thoughts about singed chest hair and his lack of said hair. Like Booster, Captain Marvel is then punched by Ace and is out of the battle. Black Canary and Mr. Miracle double-team Ace with their sonic scream and concussion grenades. Ace retaliates by negating Mr. Miracle's flying discs, which sends him hurtling to the ground. And Mr. Miracle makes some comments that he's shocked that Ace was able to negate this because it's new god technology. Guy expects to finish the fight all by himself because, well, let's face it, he's Guy. But at the last minute, Ace changes his skin color to yellow, and the defenseless Green Lantern is knocked aside right into Black Canary. Ace is making quick work of nearly the entire League, and it's because he's been programmed to counter each one of the members of the League. Ace ignites his own skin, becoming a, basically a walking Hulk-sized human torch. He's lumbering right towards Batman. Batman turns out as distracting Ace, while Booster flies up behind the android, grabs him, and flies up into the air. Meanwhile, Blue Beetle disconnects the energy shield so Booster can fly higher and higher, taking Ace way up in the sky. Now, we find out at this point that off-camera, if you will, Booster and Blue Beetle had concocted a plan to take down the Ace android. Booster continues flying Ace up into the air, and Ace isn't programmed to counteract Booster's power since he isn't part of the league, technically. Once Booster is high enough, Booster throws Ace towards the ground. Then Blue Beetle reactivates the energy shield and pushes it to critical. Their timing is precise, and the Ace android is half above and half below the energy shield when it's activated. The shield clips Ace right in half, and the android explodes. The blue and the gold did it. They saved the day. Batman is suitably impressed. While still high up in the air, Booster does the equivalent of basically an end zone dance, and Martian Manhunter and Batman agree that Booster would be a fine addition to the team. They sarcastically lament that it's a shame Booster is lacking in energy and enthusiasm. Hmm. While patching their wounds inside the headquarters, Batman welcomes Booster Gold to the Justice League. Actually, Batman manages to call Guy Gardner an idiot in the same time he's announcing Booster's on the team, so it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And in what is probably the only time in the League's history, Batman actually compliments Booster's intelligence. <laughs> if, Mark your calendar. Right. If only Batman knew what the next five years was going to hold. 
<laughs> then, much to everyone's chagrin, they see Maxwell Lord on television, just outside of their headquarters, declaring himself the official press liaison for the newly reformed Justice League. That's how the issue ends. They say that they're going to have to have a serious talk with Max. Next issue, the return of Dr. Fate and the mystery of the Gray Man. And more importantly, but not noted of the next issue box, next issue is the infamous One Punch. Oh, God. I know. I can't oh. wait. Oh, man. that's That thing has never escaped Guy Gardner. Never. And I, well, it's not no. escaped comics in general, really. <laughs> no. That's, that's like one of the top three things people know about the character. And Giffen and DiMatteis, they've talked about it in interviews. It was just kind of a, a fun bit, and now here we sit 30 years later, and they still have to hear about it at every convention. <laughs> well, they, they primed it for four issues before they finally had Batman slug him. Yeah. And it, we all kind of felt like we were living through Batman in that moment. <laughs> all right, got to stop us there, because i got to save that for next episode. Sorry, buddy. You get okay, the booster gold. You don't get the one punch also. Quit being so uh, greedy, Gillis. Okay. So, what'd you think of the issue? I really like this issue. It's probably one of the best first issue of a new member that I've seen. Mm. There's a couple of these that, that do it really well. I think the Grant Morrison issue where Connor Hawk joins the oh, Morrison Aaron League. That's a great one. Uh, yeah, it's a great one. I think what you really have to do is you bring in the new character and you have to set up who they are, what they can do, and give them a chance to fight the bad guys without the team helping them. So you can show off their powers, show off their personnel, but you got to bring in the team at the end like they do here because it gives you a chance to see how Booster would react to everyone else. And I love how we immediately set up the Booster Blue Beetle friendship, that it's right there at the beginning. I actually did not know that it would be set up that quickly. I guess I had assumed that it would be something that would just kind of happen organically over the course of the series. But with this and the fact that they're working together right off the bat and they both have the big uh, the big dance move yeah. when it happens, I think it's great because it really shows that they thought that this could be a buddy duo. You know, what's sort of interesting, too, is they team up and they come up with this plan and it happens off camera. So in actuality, the first Booster and Beetle scheme that's ever developed, we don't even get to see. Yeah, it, it, it's the one that works. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's, get used to that. It's not going to happen very often. <laughs> So, yeah, there are a lot of these things. You, It's fun. Again, the praise that Batman and Martian Manhunter throw on him. Soak that in now, because you're going to see a lot of these things happening exactly the opposite way, where they have to come in <sighs> shaking their head and having to clean up after something that these guys are doing. Right. It's kind of nice, because if this had gone the way that it usually goes for Booster, he might not have made it onto the team. Oh, right. I mean, absolutely. And Giffen and Dimateus, this is their first time writing Booster at this point. And so they, they hadn't even decided where these characters were going to go and becoming the the goofballs of the team. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of interesting how they sort of develop that way because when you really look at the Justice League series, that it's a series that has two different uh, sets of best friend characters. What I really love is that two of them, obviously Fire and Ice, join the team together, so they join as a duo, but that Blue Beetle and Booster Gold are both characters that had come into this book as solo characters with their own books, yeah. and because of their interaction on this book, their friendship is the thing that defines them to most readers, that Blue Beetle and Booster Gold are a duo. The idea that these guys were ever solo characters, like for people like me, I didn't even know they had solo books at the time this issue came out. It's kind of cool to see how a team book can end up defining these characters in ways that actually supersede the, their own ongoing books. I have to wonder if that's part of what led them, you know, Giffen and Dimitrius, to bringing them together because they both had a similar path leading up to Justice League, which is they were both post-crisis, you know, darlings. They both got their own ongoing at the time. Both of them lasted basically about 24 issues. They both ended shortly after they joined the Justice League. So, I mean, it's you look at the, the path there, and it's like, oh, there's a lot of similarities there. And maybe that's part of what that brought them together in that way. Now, issue eight 
is of this series is really the clincher where the boaha actually starts and the ro- the bromance goes into full swing in there. But yeah, I had forgotten until doing the recap for this issue that they had teamed up at all in this. Way. Yeah, I kind of love the fact that they became friends in this way because I could see a lot of other writing teams saying, "Okay, I have these two guys who are both the funny guy. Uh, they're both coming on. They have sort of similar kind of personalities. I'm going to chuck one of them off the team to make room. That's going to happen about ninety percent of the time. They're going to want to try to make them unique and. Instead, they go, well, obviously these guys would gravitate towards each other, and they end up becoming better characters because they shared the series with that other guy than they would have if there had just been one of them as the funny guy. They're funny because they're playing off each other, and because their sense of humor mesh so well that they kind of elevate each other, and they take what would have been a small scheme into a crazy scheme. And that's that's what I just sort of love. And you sort of see in this issue the beginnings of that, the idea that these guys like each other right off the bat. Yeah. Like you said, the dance they both do is just really nice. Uh, did you notice that, that Maxwell Lord's birthday on that, uh, I guess that's his who's who entry in the beginning. <laughs> um, that's It's actually April Fool's Day. I did not notice it until you pointed it out in the notes. Uh, that is hysterical. <laughs> that is an absolute hoot. I kind of love that. And you wonder if the things in that thing are fake. Maybe that's part of the joke. Because who knows how much stuff Maxwell Lord is putting out there that's true about himself. Because we find out later there's a lot of complicated stuff going yes, into this character. So maybe that was all part of a joke leading into it. The interesting thing is, according to the interviews, Giffen and Dimitrius didn't know where Maxwell Lord's story was going. Oh, they, wow. They knew they wanted to create the mystery. They knew there was a lot of these key components, but ultimately they really didn't know where his story was going to go until they sat down to write issue 10 or 11. Oh, wow. Right now they're just building mystery behind him, you know, and mystique. And I, I love that, you know, they've already got a dossier worked up. They've got a mugshot of this guy already, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> where, where do you get that, that, that profile right. shot? Where are you getting exactly. that? Exactly. The fact that his name is Maxwell Lord the fourth that's just that i don't know it just adds a level of comedy just right there by being the fourth it is a hoot. oh i love it uh, it's it's great the body language in this book and again this is just me heaping more praise on kevin mcguire is just great and i think really when you get into superhero comics do this probably more than any other medium which is that the universe in a superhero story conspires to make the hero look cool i mean this is how batman works is that batman always looks cool he's always on a roof his cape is always moving in the coolest way possible he's on a gargoyle that everything these characters do looks cool and what i love that we get from kevin mcguire is he kind of thumbs his nose at that just a little bit just kind of yeah and gives these characters these little touches of of realistic body language that kind of undermine them being these iconic larger than life gods and that's the stuff that really makes this series works and makes these characters human. Because, I mean, of course, in a superhero story, Batman always looks cool. But all you have to do is imagine Batman in real life checking his email on his cell phone. <laughs> it immediately looks silly to actually inject that kind of realistic body posture. And to put that into a story is really kind of subversive, that it's kind of taking these characters that were used to being iconic and, you know, just like a pantheon of gods who are just sort of above you. And they have this sense of them. I mean, this is the Justice League. The Justice League literally were in space looking down at somebody at one point. And to have them actually in a cave uh, acting like people, having things like Guy Gardner's posture where he's leaning back and in a really, really goofy way, trying to pour the last drop of, I'm assuming that's beer that he's drinking Gotta during a meeting. out of it. Yeah, he's drinking during a meeting. I'm surprised Batman allowed that. But you know, even that, it's just kind of cool. Those little things like that, the way he leans back while he's just kind of going, yeah, you know, if I was in charge, 
And it's that wonderfully undignified body language that he does. The same thing where the the fence shorts out and Booster kind of blows up. And I love when stories do this. And I don't know if you – did you ever see the Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading? I have not. It is a great spy story without spies in it, and I definitely recommend checking it out. But one of the things that movie has is George Clooney. And if there's something you know about George Clooney is that he is a cool guy. And they consistently give George Clooney little things to do that undermine him being cool, like being fidgety about like his cheese platter or him being kind of paranoid and just doing things to make him uncool. And that's one of the, one of the things I think Kevin McGuire does better than almost anybody. Steve Dillon, who did uh, Preacher, is also really kind of good at this. It's, He's exceptional, yeah. It's funny because we always kind of equate the words uh, grim and gritty together. And I think that grim is the tone, but gritty is the feel. And I think that this book is not grim, but it's actually gritty, which is it adds those little organic moments of, of humanity where somebody looks scared when something explodes next to them rather than standing there defiant. And, you know, people lean back back and people look bored and people make faces while they're making fun of somebody. I love that on page four where the Justice League comes in to confront Max and Booster. Booster's, you know, Max is introducing Booster and McGuire has taken the time to draw Booster like one arm is crossed on the other. It's a clear body language of nervousness. Yeah. Booster is clearly nervous and it's all in the art. It's not in the dialogue. It's really well done. It's effective. And you can see on the page right before that, look at the way that Dr. Light is standing in the first panel. Mm -hmm. She's clearly uncomfortable. You can do so much about looking at Booster's kind of leaning forward in his seat. He doesn't look like he, he looks impatient. And the only person who looks relaxed is Maxwell Lord. And it's that contrast that really sets up the difference between them. It's the point where he gets angry that Booster starts to look like a superhero. And even then, there's a little touch on it where he's embarrassed, too, that he's making a fuss because he's been let out here under false premises. And he's not just like, I thought this was my big day. But this dude is totally a fraud, and this is embarrassing. It's got to be awkward as hell for Dr. Light and Booster both. Oh, yeah. To be invited to join the premier team of the, of the of the world, really, at this point. And they think they're in and find out, no, sorry, you're you're in the room and you're just waiting for the other Justice Leaguers to come in and chastise you. That's horribly embarrassing. No wonder Dr. Light quit. Oh, I love it. This is the thing that I really love that this issue sort of does. There was an interview that I heard with Steve Lieber, the guy who actually did the artwork for Superior Foes of Spider-Man. And he was talking about how a lot of his early work was a lot of the scary kind of horror-based comic book and how doing a book on uh, humor, doing a series that's supposed to be funny, actually he had to really relearn how to draw comic books. And one of the things that that you do in a lot of superhero comic books, and this is how you draw comics the Marvel way, Mm -hmm. is everything is kind of turned up to 11. Poses are as dramatic as they can possibly be. Everyone looks awesome all the time. And he said that when you want to make it funny, you actually pull back the camera. So instead of having close-in shots of people while they're talking that you might see them from the chest up or the waist up, full body shots. You have to look at them from across the street. And when you do it from far away, way, things that could be dramatic suddenly become funny. Hmm. And you, you see that a lot in this book. You see the characters actually look small, that you're looking at them from a far distance away. And one of the examples that Steve Lieber gives, he says, imagine if your character is scared and they're running down the street because they have to catch up with a phone call or they're trying to meet somebody and you're close in on them and it's tense and 
they suddenly trip and they bang their knee on like a fire hydrant. And like, ah, and, but if you do that same scene from across the street, banging the fire hydrant suddenly becomes funny. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's really, it's really interesting. The same way of like, imagine kicking somebody off of a cliff and you kick them off a cliff and it's really close up and the person's flying right at you, you know, like if, if like Jack Kirby or Walt Simonson did it. Now we've all seen that picture that's sort of similar. Imagine where the picture is really far away and it's just a little person going kick. <laughs> and see, that's what I mean. It's, yeah. it's like, it becomes funny and you don't have the dramatic uh, panel angles. You do these straight ahead shots and Kevin McGuire sort of knows how to do this intuitively. He knows the scenes that are supposed to be dramatic, but if you see the scenes where everyone is crowding around uh, Maxwell Lord, everyone's just standing there and it's full body shots, not at a weird angle. And that doesn't really makes it funny. It's tense, but it's funny. And that's the stuff that I think this guy does really well, is he I think he does decompressed storytelling before anyone else, because it's a lot of it is not just doing the scenes dramatically, but having those little lead-up moments. So it's like there's a lead-up, there's a punchline. It's like the way that Guy Gardner reacts in the first issue when he backs down from Batman. Mm-hmm. You gotta watch the whole thing play out. And he's just a marvel at this stuff. I, and, sorry I interrupted you there. Ah, actually, I'm probably not. But um, okay. <laughs> if, if you ever get these comics digitally, pick them up from Comixology and read them in the guided view. I don't know if you've done much with reading digital comics, and I know I've preached on this in previous episodes. Sorry, folks, you're gonna have to humor me. But especially Kevin McGuire stuff in panel view is perfect. Just like you said, that the setup and the joke, the delivery, etc. When you read it panel by panel, you don't see the panel ahead of time. You don't see what's going to come next. And you really get a chance to zoom in on a little tiny panel. Because some of these pages have like 10 panels per page. You zoom in on a little tiny panel and you just study it and you get so much more of the artwork. And it really pays off with a series like this. It really, really does. It really does. Uh, I've, I've actually done a bit of the guided stuff. And it's it's a neat experience because you actually end up looking at it panel by panel in a way that you just can't help but have all this other stuff in your peripheral vision yep. when you're looking at the whole page. It's kind of neat. Um, one of the things I really like is a nice touch. And again, this is a question, not grim, but gritty. It's kind of like Star Wars is not grim, but Star Wars is gritty because you have things like the droids are always filthy and Luke's, Luke Skywalker's landspeeder was probably never new. Right. And it's stuff like that, right? Things have lived in. One of the things they do well in this one, watch how Booster's hair gets messed up while he fights the Royal Flesh Gang. It's kind of like this very nicely uh, hairsprayed, slicked back sort of thing. But it's at the point where he gets grabbed from behind by King. You start seeing his hair get messed up, especially once he starts getting punched. And that's not something a lot of times comics remember to do, which is that getting punched in the face will mess up your hair. (laughs) And, And he actually looks like he's been in a fight. And I kind of like that little touch. And the same thing at the very end when everyone's kind of getting better at the end. Like, there's a sense of fighting hurts people. Like, Guy is in that um, that beanbag chair that he's right. made for himself with a ring. And, and there's, like, a towel on Booster because he's probably sweating like crazy because he's wearing, you know, bright gold in the middle of the sun based on how much it was shining on Batman. It's just the little touches in this book. Like, the same way that Ace looks when he catches fire. Right. It, it doesn't look the way that the Human Torch looks. Right. It looks like a dude on fire the way they used to do that stunt in movies before CGI existed, where they actually <laughs> set a stuntman on fire. Right. It looks it's great. And it's it's that little touches of realism that ground the the elements of this story that are fantastical. And that's what the contrast between these characters who have brightly colored costumes and are really just like there's a guy from space and there's a space cop and there's a lady who can shoot Sonic out of her mouth, and there's a super scientist with a magical bug ship and 
but they all look human. And it's that element that kind of pulls it down a little bit and makes these bizarrely weird characters relatable. And that's the thing that this book does amazingly well. Well, a few things of note, like Max's face throughout the first half of the book is just amazing. You talk, we talk about the facial expressions, but when Dr. Light throws the signal device, he's just kind of like a hmm? kind of face as Ooh. it you know, almost hits him. And later on, when the gag where Booster throws him under the bus with the master plan and <laughs> everyone puts their hand on his shoulder like, really? And his face yes. just gets that like, not happy. Like it's all there. I bet that DiMatteis probably wrote more dialogue, and then when he saw McGuire's art, he's like, "Forget it. I don't need this. It's all right here yeah. in the artwork. It's beautiful." I love, oh, I love that panel because it's boost. It's, it could just be Max's face, but it's Max's face, and you see both Batman and John Jones's hand on his shoulder. Yes, yes. That's what really makes it work. Is it just like, hold on a minute here? It cha- It sort of changes everything. It's great. It's it's wonderfully subtle too. Because it's not the focus of the panel, but it's just like, whoa, that both of them are like, yeah, this guy's no good, right at the same time. Yep. <laughs> I love it. He, he has a plan for them, and I think they're developing a plan of their own for him. Yes, yeah. yeah, seriously. I love it. I, Maxwell Lord really is a great character. Oh, and At this point, too, you're, you, I bet the readers, as they read issue number four, were wondering, you know, probably expecting this guy to be gone next issue rather yeah. than being a regular part of the team. Yeah, in a lot of ways, he's kind of, I I wouldn't say necessarily the Professor X of the JLI, but he's kind of that home-based character that everyone kind of gravitates around. The, the fact that I guess most stories would probably do one year of, of stories about uh, Maxwell Lord, and then he's gone from the book, I don't think that anyone would have expected that this guy would be around for more than 60 issues. Right. He's the Robert Vaughn of the last season of 18. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, he is. <laughs> oh, man. I, I try not to think about the last season of 18. I would forget about it, except they connected a man from Uncle. So, anyway, a few more art things i got to mention. Now, in previous issues, and I don't remember if it was all three issues or just the first couple, but Giffen had done the breakdowns on a lot of the earlier issues. And this time, no Giffen breakdowns. It's all McGuire. And even without Giffen, he's still doing a lot of nine-panel grids. And mm-hmm. and we've talked about this in previous episodes as well. I mean, McGuire was still fairly new to the world of published comics, and this guy is amazing to be oh, so yeah. young and so early in his career and produce work like this. And I, I got to assume he did learn quite a bit from Giffen's breakdowns because, again, he is mirroring a lot of Giffen's styles. It goes. One of the, Absolutely. A few other touches I love. They do a close-up on Booster's ring. It's the Legion flight ring, and I don't know whether this was a McGuire thing or an Al Gordon thing. Uh, it might be Al Gordon because he was a Legion guy, definitely, but that the L on the ring, it's not just any L. It's the Interlac L. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, well, I didn't catch I, it until I was looking at it here going, wait a minute, that's... Now, if someone is a big Legion guy and they tell me I'm a little bit wrong, if it's not an Interlac L, it sure as heck looks like the Interlac language to me. So that, that really jumped out at me. Oh, that is a really cool little touch. And I, the funny thing with Booster having a flight ring is that most of the time the arts, the artists forget about it. Right. And they just assume that it's part of his suit's power. So for them to, to highlight it, I don't think it gets highlighted that often. I, I guess I'm not really the Legion guy. You might have to explain this to me, but isn't he from 500 years before the Legion? No. Booster is from the... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, he is. He's from the uh, 25th century, and the Legion's from the 30th century, so you're correct there. But there is a space museum where Booster works, and the Legion are always traveling through time. 
sometimes they leave stuff behind. Early issues, I want to say issues maybe five and six of Booster Gold, explain how the Legion flight ring and time bubble ended up in the 25th century, where Booster was a uh, janitor in the Space Museum and was able to travel then back to 20th century. So that's how it all makes uh, sense. Okay. Apparently the original plan in Pre-Crisis, and I learned this from Andy Capellish and Ryan Daly on Secret Origins, apparently the original plan in Pre-Crisis era, when Dan Jurgens was developing all this, was it was going to be Superman's old Legion flight ring. But they had to change everything when Crisis came along, so it's somebody else's flight ring. But. I, it was kind of a bit weird that, that Superman would have... I mean, he wants to be part of the group, but he kind of doesn't need it. It's kind of like the Supermobile from the Superpowers action right. figures. It's like, well, he doesn't need it. It's just cool. Like the Spider-Mobile. Well, it's, but it's also it's like when you're on the team and everyone else is wearing the team jackets, and it's like, well, okay... I'm a member of the Avengers. I'll wear the brown jacket. I don't need it, but that's fine. Nobody needed that brown jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that was all right. Uh, oh, on, 90s. on page 16, another art note. Page 16, middle panel. The O-Face Award of this episode goes to Black Canary. Congratulations, Black Canary. Oh. I'll wait for you to get oh. there. <laughs> I see it, yes. So, and uh, by O-Face, I mean her mouth is in the shape of a perfect O. I'm, I'm not sure what you people at home were thinking I was talking about, but just... Get your heads out of the gutter, folks. Please, come on. This is a kid show. It's kind of a Shatner pose. It kind of looks like Shatner in the middle of a monologue. Because <laughs> she's... I think the actors refer to that as milking the, the invisible giant cow, oh where gosh. you have your hands like... Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing, but it's, it's definitely, that's what I mean about not grim, but gritty. It's like when I'm jumping off of a cliff into battle, I'm not worried about how I look, you know, right. I, I'm worried about my pose when I hit the ground. It's gotta be dramatic. I'm gonna hit, yeah, I gotta hit my three point stance like a superhero. Exactly. It, it, I was just thinking like a cat, but yes, three point stance is the perfect way to mention it. Yep. Cause that's how you land. Even though it would probably break your wrist. <laughs> that's just embarrassing because the first thing they see of you is ouch. And you know, that doesn't help anybody. But yeah, I can definitely see it. That's what I love. I, I love the face expressions in this book. So I'm going to move away from art a little bit and talk about characters for a second. Booster, we, we've talked quite a bit about Booster. We were just talking about his past. One thing I forgot to mention is Booster, at this point in history, is well known for his partner, Skeets, which is the little flying robot that hangs out with yeah. him. But no Skeets here. And in fact, through the history of JLI, at least the Giffen Dimateus era... Skeets never shows up. Yeah, that is kind of weird. It's funny because I didn't even know Skeets was a thing for a long time, and he had a little floaty robot buddy. Funny you mentioned. Yeah, it's it's weird because I don't think Skeets actually came back to Booster until right after the death of Superman, where it showed that he, I guess, he'd just been in a what was he like in Booster's closet this whole time, switched off. It was and something he, like that. I think I I know in Extreme Justice he came back. Oh, I, I oh <laughs> well, that series exists and it hurts. I, it's got Firestorm in it, so I can't ignore it. So I I. Really reached out to J.M.D. Mateus and asked him just this week. I asked him, you know, when you added Booster to the team, any reason you didn't do use Skeets? He says that's a question for Giffen, because at the time, J.M.D. Mateus didn't even really know much of, about Booster, and he wasn't even aware there was a Skeets. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I didn't know there was a Skeets. So, but it's weird that Skeets is so much a part of our, our perception of the character now, yep. but for probably the lion's share of him being a character, a prominent character in comic books, Skeets just isn't around. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole period, there's a whole decade where he was not a, a non-entity now they've really done a lot with him in the animated stuff so i, I love oh, Skeet. God, yeah. I, and voiced by billy west too i i can't not hear billy west's voice whenever skeets appears in a comic book now hmm, okay that's a good point oh yeah it's it's funny how that stuff sort of defines the way you hear characters i don't know when it was but i do tend to hear what is his name thomas f wilson the guy who plays biff from back to the future for a lot of guy gardner dialogue <laughs> 
That's he's got, genius. He, he's kind of like a... I, I, I'd say that guy is smarter than Biff Tannen. It's not hard. It's That's damning praise, but it, he is smarter than Biff Tannen. Well, Guy has a pretty extensive history of being, you know, he was a guidance counselor in school. He was a coach. He had a really... He was really well put together until he got brain damage and then shunted to another dimension where he was forced to watch Hal Jordan hook up with his girlfriend. I mean, a lot of bad stuff happened to Guy to lead him to this place. So, you know, I kind of forgive him for some things. And, and, yeah, and you know, I'm going to give him props for just doing the fake little bat ears in the dark in this issue, which was oh, hysterical. That is my favorite. I love the face expression he has. It's so childish. Yes. And if you you notice that he doesn't, he's not willing to do that while the lights are on and Batman could see him. <laughs> It's it's always the minute. It's like I, I love it. Again, he's he's got a power ring that essentially makes him bulletproof. He can fly faster than light through space. He can create anything he wants out of his mind. But there's this dude who has a belt with a bunch of gadgets in it, whose personality is so scary that you don't want to risk making fun of him in front of his face. Right. I love that. I that's that's the power of Batman's personality and probably the gravelly voice. It's just it just. No, I don't tell I mean, just you talk <laughs> like that, and you just give the air that you are the most powerful guy in the room, even though you're probably the guy with the least number of powers. He's really just the pinnacle of, of human training. You know, I'm not going to try it because he will figure out a way to beat me up. Yeah, to uh, try that at work, see how it works out for you. Now, I probably wouldn't try it at work. <laughs> you know, what I just noticed something about Batman. Check out page uh, 14, and this happens a few times in the issue. Look at the bat symbol. Can you see if there's anything? Do you notice anything wrong there? Oh, I'm looking. I'm looking in a trade, so my, oh, my page okay. numbers don't match it's, up. Uh, it's, what part of this? It's got that like angelic light behind Batman, and he's making his he's passing judgment on Booster after they, he finished defeating most of the Royal Flush guy. He does have extra little bat wing things yes, on he the does. bottom. Extra little yeah. phalanges or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, um, and that happens a lot in McGuire's artwork. In fact, there's a famous poster, Class of 87, where if you look at the original artwork, Batman's symbol is the same way. It's got the extra little points on the bottom there. And then in the final poster, someone fixed it and redrew it so it, it doesn't have as many points. But it's interesting, McGuire made that mistake a few times. And it's one of those things that, like, I bet that kind of stuff crept into art a lot up until 1989. Oh, God, yeah. Then everyone got that thing Every, right. Yes, dead on. Well, that symbol was everywhere. Although, you know what's I funny guess, about... I guess the movie version's a little bit off, too. At least for the yeah. Batman Returns, they had it right. But That's the weird thing with the Batman 89 movie symbol, is it actually adds an extra phalange thing to the bottom, to the wings. Yeah. It's like I guess those are feet? I'm, I'm not really sure. But um, the symbol that's the logo for the movie is still the classic one. It's not. It doesn't actually match the symbol on his chest in the movie. Good point. That is a very good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I don't really know how that happened, but I imagine there's just different people working on different parts called, of the movie. It's called marketing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a couple more bulleted things here. I'm just running through all my notes here. Ten, the you know from the Royal Flush Gang, smoking mm -hmm. hot. Just putting it out there. How does that costume work? Because uh, <laughs> is is she wearing body paint or is that actually a full costume, kind of like what Mister Miracle has? I think it's where... like a leotard. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't know if there's like if we just don't see the separation of like a shirt and her face paint. Because with Mister Miracle, there's just no figuring that thing out. Because it's the same thing where you have what appears to be a mask that goes into your nostrils, and that's what she's kind of wearing. Yeah. But I gotta tell you, it takes a very confident person to wear her costume. So it does. I good for her. that's confidence. I don't. Yeah. Seriously, if you if you've clearly done that many sit-ups, you should show it up. Right. Good for you. Crunches. They're your friend. Yeah. So. The roster changes. You started mm -hmm. talking about this in the beginning of the show. Big Rod, first roster change of the series. We lose Dr. Light. 
booster gold comes in, it, that's a big deal. I mean, this is this is the beginning of those changes you were talking about, where the cast just starts rotating like crazy. Yeah. Doctor Light does turn up again in, in Annual Number One. I had to go back and look because I was thinking Annual One took place before, like had some confusing continuity because I knew Doctor Light was in it, but then I looked back at it. Nope, sure enough, it is definitely after she's left the team. So and and again in plain clothes, <laughs> which is yeah. Fun. So the first issue cover is the only place that she's actually ever in costume. That is correct. Uh, up until she joins Justice League Europe. And at oh. that point, I think she her costume is actually yellow and white rather than black and white. Yeah, I, it's kind of weird with the roster changes that they happen so quickly. And what's so funny about this Justice League is it really has the reputation of being all second string characters. But when you look at that last team shot in the last issue of Legends... It pretty much is an approximation of the big seven style Justice League that, of course, they can't use Batman or you can't use uh, Superman and Wonder Woman, but they're still there. And all of these characters are standing together. They don't have Hal Jordan, but they still have a Green Lantern. Mm -hmm. The Flash is there, but they couldn't use him. But that last shot looked very much like these are our iconic big name characters. Same thing with Doctor Doctor Fate. And that the Doctor Fate one is the one that kind of weirds me out the most is that they have this character on the team and he really only is acting as a team member for the next storyline. Right. Not really anything before here. He shows up in the first issue at the meeting for a little bit, but he disappears when everything kind of happens. Yeah. And even tell, they even tell Batman, he'll understand. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, well, thanks. It would have been really handy to have a wizard about now. Exactly. And I, I kind of wondered why they didn't just kind of keep that as a regular thing where maybe they forgot that he was a member of the team because you haven't seen him for a while and use him in a phantom stranger kind of way, mm. where he just pops up every so often. And they're like, wait, he's gone again? Wait, and have somebody who's joined the team since the last time. They're like, wait, who is that guy? <laughs> Why did he show up at the team barbecue? I don't understand. Yeah, you're just like... I, I think that would have probably been a pretty cool use of the character. Well, they also could have, if they're worried about him just being too powerful, they also could have just then introduced the new Doctor Fate, which was Eric Strauss and Linda Strauss, because their power level was at a much lower level. They would have been a good fit, too. So it's, it is strange that he didn't end up back on the team. Yeah, especially because it wasn't like an editorial thing where there was another creative team trying to pull him away. It was still, you know, DiMatteis writing this character, and Giffen was involved in that book. So they pretty much had dibs on him. Yeah. And it's kind of weird that they seem to have more control over characters like Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, who were, I mean, they were finishing up their runs of other titles. I mean, Booster only had like, a, you said five more yeah, issues five after more. this? And Booster had about, I mean, Be Beetle had, I think, seven, eight issue, more issues. So they're about to be freed up. So it's weird that they had more free reign to use those characters who were still kind of tied up with another editor than they would with a character that they pretty much own. Yeah. I wonder why they got rid of that. It just, it doesn't, I don't know. It's so funny because... Like you said, around issue eight or so, that's when it kind of it kind of condenses down into the Justice League International that you know. Yeah. Even though once a spinoff happens, you lose Rocket Red and you lose Captain Atom, but it's kind of funny. There's kind of this core of the five kind of major characters that or really six. We see Guy Gardner, John Jones, Booster, Beetle, Fire and Ice. Those are kind of the ones that are like at the center that, that don't really change once it gets put in place. Aside from that, it, it took a while. It took about a year for all of those pieces to be in place. Yeah. You know, one thing that I find fascinating, when I think back to earlier in our discussion, you were talking about Batman. You know, At this point, they've done Dark Knight Returns. Year one's probably, what, about to happen. He's in the middle. Oh, year one's already happened. That's right, because they're telling year two at this point. So Batman is already grim and gritty, I would say. And yet, he fits in perfectly in this league. And it's it's a gorgeous way that they're showing how Batman can be used in so many different ways. And he's still the straight guy, though. He's still the yeah. jerk. 
Now, he cracks the occasional joke, but he is still playing that grim and gritty sort of role in this book, and it's great. I love it. Yeah, it shows that there's a versatility to Batman's character that I don't think most superheroes have. And what you can do with Batman is literally anything. You can throw that character anywhere and he will work, which is why I really kind of ruffles my feathers quite a bit when I have I hear a fan say something to the degree of, this is real Batman, that's not real Batman. And it's, it's all real Batman. I mean, Batman is both the Dick Sprang character who is saving Robin when he's tied to like a giant typewriter and he's wearing the rainbow costumes and he's teaming up with like Fat Man or meeting Batmite and any of that stuff, or like the Adam West version of it. I mean, that's all Batman, in the same way that Frank Miller is Batman. And it shows that these characters, these versions of these characters, can coexist in different books at the same time, when it's clear that DC post-crisis had this idea of sort of a dark, grim Avenger of the night, that character can still work in a funny book. Absolutely. Do you think that's why they kind of pulled him back from being leader after a while? Is that they wanted to kind of pull back from Batman being funny? Or was that the Batman office? Well, I, I have heard in interviews, in, and I don't know how much this is, was joking around or not, but I get the sense that Denny O'Neill was not happy with the way Batman was handled in the <laughs> Justice League books, which may have been why issue seven, he steps down when they go to the international level and they say, okay, Martian Manhunter, you take over, you be in charge now. And, and Batman wasn't featured as prominently after that. He certainly had some issues that were he was the focus, but... Marsh Manhunter really does grow into the bigger role at that point. So it could very well have been that pressure that, that brought that about. I think it works for the best that way. Yeah. I think in the end, I think it's it's a lot more fun to watch rather than a drill sergeant character who's always scolding people and everyone's kind of bristling under him and watching him come to blows with Guy Gardner even. And rather than seeing that, seeing sort of a long-suffering character who's actually a lot more patient having to deal with these people who are either acting, they're just acting like children a lot of the time. And he kind of has to be a parent to them at the same time. I, that's what I like about Jean. By the way, how do you pronounce his name? I say Jean. I, I've got my, well, I am horrible at pronouncing words. I say every, I pronounce everything wrong, but I think I get my pronunciation from the Justice League cartoon. So I would say Jean Jones is what I would say. And I okay. may not even be getting that right from the cartoon, but that's how I say it. That's how I've been saying it too. And I think I said that before the cartoon. We're go with that. Yeah, let's let's just Jean Jones. We have just it's not just our opinion. We have decided, so therefore it is. It is official canon. How easy is yeah. that? Gavel hits. So following up on something we talked about uh, last episode, me and Tim Wallace talked about Beetle once again not getting any hand to hand combat action in this issue. He, and he talks about it. He does it too. talk about it exactly. So I'm very interested to see when Beetle finally gets to throw a punch. I don't hope I don't have to wait all the way to with him and Guy Gardner in a boxing ring to see that happen. Oh God, that was painful to read. <laughs> but it, it's kind of weird. I think the thing that kind of hurts Beetle a little bit is that he's on a team with a lot of martial artists at this point. Mm-hmm. That somebody needs to jump in and do a karate kick. You You've got Batman there, and Batman's got to have his cool move. Batman actually doesn't do a lot in this issue either, but he manages to look cool while doing very little. You also have things like Black Canary. Black Canary is doing a lot of the kung fu moves. Like, she beat up that Rocket Red in the previous issue. Uh, not just any Rocket Red, but Dimitri. Oh, Dimitri. That, yeah. that is actually one of my favorite things this series has ever done. They could have just done a bunch of random Rocket Reds and then created one, but actually have it be one of the Rocket Reds who not only gets his teeth knocked out on camera, but is actually gets a lot of fun little dialogue and you get the impression i love dimitri because he's just like he's there's a little bit of yakov shmirnov with yes. him but there's a lot of dad humor with him which i really <laughs> like he's just he's kind of a big lovable dork uh, you can already see that in that early issue where he's kind of making jokes and 
and he's already just trying to act tough, but kind of failing because he's too much of a teddy bear. And I, <laughs> I, I love that about this book. And he's just such a fun, fun guy. I did not think I would care for that character when I first started reading the book. I was like, oh, this guy, okay. And by the end, he's, I mean, he's up there with uh, Ralph and Sue you know, from the from the just like Europe era, at least for me, as being so so much the heart of that team. And uh, oh I just yeah. So you mentioned Black Canary, you know, and earlier when we did the monitor duty, we mentioned that Green Arrow Longbow Hunters number one was hitting the shelf this month. Truthfully, this is the beginning of the end for Black Canary in the book. It's going to take several months for it to finally happen. And her final scene, which technically she's not even in, it's just on the telephone, is a real heartbreaker. Yeah, it is. And it's actually another example of the same thing that was happening with Batman, which is that you have an, another uh, editorial team that really kind of has first dibs on a character, yep. that she's part of the Green Arrow book. And the Green Arrow book was moving in a much more darker, a mature reader's direction. Like, the one thing they wanted to do is sort of strip away a lot of the more overtly superhero stuff. Like, she actually is, is horribly attacked in a tone that does not match up with JLI. And she loses her powers at the same time that Ollie gets rid of the uh, trick arrows and kind of goes a bit more. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want a character that's happening in that kind of grim and gritty Seattle also occasionally leaving to join a really funny superhero team yep. because you can't help but bring that stuff back and have a guest appearance. And it would just be so discordant that I, I totally get having to write her out of the book. And that's always the danger of writing these team books. Well, the joy of it, though, is I don't mean joy with her character, but when they did have to write her out, they replaced her with three other female characters. Fire, Ice and Barda all pretty much came in together. And oh, it's, I love Barda. It's, so oh, much. God, they're so good. So good. So big question here at the issue. What was the Royal Flush Gang's purpose? Um, I, I mean, it's it's clear that they were probably hired by Maxwell Lord. That's as a safe, part of that's a safe assumption. That they there's no reason for them to be there other than they had a way into the security system, and who else had a way into the security system? The fact that they seem to have been sent there to make Booster Gold look good. Yep. That they have a hole in their defenses and their attack plans where they have one guy who they don't they don't plan for, and that's the guy who ends up kicking their asses. So it it makes a lot of sense, and this is not the first time that Maxwell Lord has explicitly been behind a supervillain plot to pull these guys out into the the public. Like, the first issue was all about that, Exactly. Another key, which won't make sense till later, is when he Ace takes out Mr. Miracle's hover disks. Mm -hmm. Well, he says, these are new new, new Genesis technology. How can he do that? Well... As people oh. find out down the line, I'm not going to say any more, but Max's origin. Uh. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That makes complete sense. Yep. That's, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. So you said they hadn't even figured that stuff out then, but it feels like, is this just things that are happening wonderfully on accident? Because that's. The, you got to wonder, is it serendipity or is there something to it? Oh God, that matches up so well. Yep. I, I love that. See, that's the sort of stuff I love is the, the willingness to do a slow burn with a character like that. It doesn't end up being the thing you expect because the thing you expect with something like that is that there's a scene where eventually they confront Maxwell Lord in like an office building and he spins around and he's like a manhunter or he's like, you know, the time trapper or something. Or he shoots somebody in the head. Yeah, yeah, something like that, (laughs) which is... Oh, my God. That's preposterous. That could never happen. Oh, oh my. How did we come to this? All right. You know what? I don't even want to go down that path. So (laughs) I don't either. We've got to move on, sadly as it is. We have to move on. We've got to talk about the house ads. Now, in the past several months, there have been some amazing house ads. And I am, as I said before, 1987, favorite year. And after three months of tons of house ads, this month, we only got two. 
which is kind of astonishing if you're looking back at the previous issues. But I started thinking about it, you know, perhaps it was the sales numbers were starting to come in from the first issue of Justice League, and you go, okay, well, here's how much Justice League of America, the final issues of the Detroit League, sold. Here's how much the new issues of Justice League International sold. Oh, well, maybe it's worth advertising in that comic now. <laughs> or, as we're rolling into the summer, comics are selling better, and so advertisers are stepping it up. So, either way, I would say that the DC advertising team were very successful in selling JLI ads by this point. Now, it's a bit of a letdown to this old-time reader, because I like the house ads. However, I'm sure it made the DC Comics funny. Financial statements happy. So. Oh, absolutely. And we got regular advertisers for, you know, M&Ms, model kits, acne cream, Tang, bubblegum, D&D, all ads that I wouldn't expect to see at all in current mo- comics nowadays. Do they still make Tang? Um, they do. I, my kids wanted it recently, and okay. probably after I... two glasses, never wanted it again. But, but I can't imagine any of these advertisers, other than maybe M&Ms, actually appearing in a comic book nowadays. Absolutely. It's a lot of car ads nowadays. That's weird. <laughs> Video games. Video games. Video games. Yep. Yeah. Well, car ads, because who is it? People like you and I that are buying comics. Yeah. It's all old farts. I mean, that's, <laughs> we're, we're going to die out someday, and then they're going to just be selling cars to children. And that's when society falls apart, when children are driving. <laughs> So, you want to tell them what our house ads this month? Oh, God. Um, wild Dog. <laughs> I, I, I know that this is a thing that exists because I actually own that second edition box set of the DC Heroes role-playing game that I never played. Right. It's oh. like that and the Star Wars ones are just role-playing game books I bought but never played. And it came with all of these. Great it was like a roster book, and the roster book had a bunch of characters in it, and Wild Dog was one of them. I'd never heard of him before. I've never, clearly I've never the, read it either, so don't feel bad. I mean, clearly the the Punisher was making a lot of money for Marvel at that time, and I know they want to get in on that. Movies like Death Wish were really big around this. Well, Death Wish like five at this point. I mean, he's not a bad design. I want to say that about Wild Dog. It's not a bad design. There's a little bit of Punisher, a little bit of Casey Jones from Ninja yeah. Turtles. He's got the hockey mask. He's got an Uzi, which back in the 80s was the coolest gun that ever was ever existed. Exactly. I do like the hockey jersey that he wears with that specific logo. It has that element of psychological warfare that there's a crazy man coming after you and he's got a laughing dog on his shirt. Yep. It's it's kind of neat. I like that about him. It looks really kind of thrown together. It's the kind of costume that a crazy person at home might come together with to become a murdery superhero. And uh, I don't actually know anybody who actually bought this thing. And it's not like it doesn't have people on it that I recognize. Max Allen Collins, Taryn Beatty, Dick Giordano. I mean, th- those are people that I know. Yeah. I just, I just don't think there's anything about this character that actually separates him from Punisher in a real way. Having covered him on the Who's Who podcast, I, I did hear in the comment section from a lot of folks that did read Wild Dog. And I do oh. know that my buddy Little Chad Bokelman is putting together a Action Comics Weekly podcast, and Wild Dog's one of the characters featured. I am interested to hear their coverage of that and just hear people's reaction to it. Because, yeah, it's a character, he's, other than reading his Who's Who entry, uh, I, he's foreign to me. i got to say, between us and Action Comics Weekly, this is the most this character has been talked about through the entire populace for at least 30 <laughs> years. I, I'm kind of surprised. I'm surprised anyone remembers this guy. I, they're not making a movie about him, and they're making a, a Slipknot got in before this guy. Oh, my beloved Slipknot. My beloved. I love Slipknot so much. I don't think he's going to make it out of the Suicide Squad movie, but he's going in. <laughs> hey, JLI fans, Shag here, coming to you from the future. Mike and I recorded this episode a few weeks ago, so there is no way we could have known the news that would break a few days before this episode was released. If you've already heard, then you nerds can stop yelling at your Zune or your Palm Pilot or whatever you listen to your podcasts on. As astonishing as it may seem, the television series Arrow on the CW has cast an actor named Rick Gonzalez to play, I kid you not, Wild Dog in Season 5 of Arrow. I'm not making this up. 
Well, I wish I could claim that our podcast single-handedly was responsible for raising the profile of Wild Dog. The announcement occurred before this episode was even released. <sighs> I'm astonished as you are, folks. I now return you to the past as Mike and I continue discussing House Ads in Justice League number four. All right, our next ad is for Silverblade, which mm-hmm. is a 12-issue miniseries by Carrie Bates, Gene Colan, and Klaus Janssen. It's got a guy who looks very Errol Flynn coming at you with a sword, and in, you know, in the back are film, film, film reels, and it says, Yesterday, he starred in film fantasies. Today, he lives them! DC presents Jonathan Lord in a new 12-issue maxi-series. And to be honest, I have never in my life seen any copy of this comic other than issue one. I don't even, uh, I assume they finished printing it in every 50 cent bin I've ever crawled through. have only ever come across issue. I, as my job, I am in charge of a 25 cent bin and I've never seen him. And <laughs> it's mostly just 90s Spider-Man to be honest. And, but, and probably Superman. Post death of Superman, Superman. Comics. Oh God. There's so much super mullet in that box. Um, <laughs> you just made a lot of people mad with that comment. Well, that, that haircut should make a lot of those same people mad. So, <laughs> but 12 issues, I've got to say that is, that is optimistic yes. that you're going to make it to the end of that. Could we at least say four? I mean, even the Punisher, who was an established character, started out with a four-issue miniseries that became a five-issue miniseries. At least they knew they're not going to get a year out of this guy. And that guy was at least, you know, had appeared in Spider-Man a bunch of times. I Looking at this, there's a lot of things about the concept that I like. I do kind of like the idea of a silver screen Errol Flynn character fighting crime in real life. If you're going to have scale mail arms and legs, it's probably not a good idea to make them green. Because it makes you look like a fishman or like a lizard or something. The color's a little bit weird. It's a little golden aging, but maybe that's the idea where you have that thrown together Alan Scott kind of look to your costume where it looks like you just kind of went through a, some costume shop and they're like, okay, that's a shirt. I guess I'm going to wear the weightlifter belt. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> and it's like, okay, then I'm going to wear the electrician's gloves. Yeah, it's it's really just a bizarre choices. I probably would have given him the Errol Flynn mustache to go for the full thing. But I, I like the idea. It's got Gene Colan art. I mean, I can't argue with that. And I suspect it may not all be just Errol Flynn stuff because I see a Frankenstein and an Invisible Man in the background, too. So maybe he adopts all kinds of different Oh, sort of like a Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. kind of super. That that would be work. I, I know that this has been done before. I don't know if you ever read the Vigilante miniseries that came out a few years ago. I did I, not. Is this the um, one by Marvel? I don't remember the the artist. I know that um, that Rob has actually talked this one up quite a bit, and it's one that takes place during the golden age of Hollywood, and he's kind of a cowboy. Oh, this is the James stuff. Robinson miniseries. Yes. Yes, yes, James Robinson, and it was really good. So that concept can totally work, and I've seen it done really well before. It, I mean, I won't say that the fact that I've never heard of this is proof that it's not very good. I mean, there's good people clearly working on it, but there are so many DC and Marvel comics from the 1980s that are totally forgettable, and it doesn't mean they're necessarily bad. It's just they have a lot of stiff competition from really good stuff that's coming out at this time that is memorable. Well, hats off to DC, though, for trying, because, you know, at this period of time, they were putting out some crazy stuff, whether it be, you know, Silverblade or Screamer or Slash Maraud or uh, Spanner's Galaxy, you know, all, by the way, which start with S for some reason. It's some crazy hmm. miniseries that would come out of nowhere, out of left field, that you wouldn't expect or be promoted. You know, there's there no impetus in the front end to get it other than, oh, that looks interesting. And they were, they were throwing everything they could at the wall, you know? Good for them. And usually yeah. in the new format as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't argue with them trying because I, I always complain when I feel like a company doesn't try. So I can't get mad at them when they clearly are. Yeah. 
All right, Mike. It's time to move on. I think it's time for... Character Spotlight. This is the segment of the show where we pick one of the characters from this issue, and the guest does all the heavy lifting so I can just sit back and eat some cheese puffs, and he's going to tell us something about, in this case, it's going to be Booster Gold, something about Booster Gold at this point in history, how he fits into the JLI, some sort of interesting facts. Mike, entertain me. Well, he's coming out of a place where he was a solo character, and I think it's kind of funny that even though Dan Jerkins created him, he was created in the 1980s, and he has a great origin story. He's got a great concept. I've always said for a lot of years, whenever I have a friend who's not really a comic book fan or a superhero person, and they see all these superhero movies coming out, and we're starting to get into like deep cut movies, like Guardians of the Galaxy, where most people have not heard of these characters, not even the 70s versions, but especially not like Rocket Raccoon and Groot. We're getting into like really obscure stuff that even a lot of comic book guys might not necessarily know. And I've had a lot of friends ask me, what is the most deserving, underappreciated superhero character that you would make a movie of. And I always say Booster Gold. Mm. And it's a lot of it is because I think Booster Gold, despite the fact that everything about him screams the 1980s, everything about him also screams modern day and, and a sort of relevance to a superhero character that became a good guy for all the wrong reasons. That he wanted to get famous, he wanted women, he wanted to make money. What I kind of love about him is that he's a good guy underneath it all. I mean, he is kind of Pete Rose from the future. But, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's a guy who just, like, burned every bridge and figured, well, this fancy stuff is actually really powerful in the 20th century. Superheroes are a big thing back then. I got to get some of that superhero action and that underneath all of this stuff. And I think the best booster stories usually are about the tug of war between his impulses to want to get attention and money and him being a genuinely good person in a way that makes him have to forego getting credit for doing stuff. That's the, the real reawakening that I think Jeff Johns and Giffen and DiMatteis gave him in the recent era that made him a big character again. That was the premise behind the thing where him teaming up with Rip Hunter and going mm -hmm. throughout time and knowing that he's that his protection from somebody going back in time and killing him in the crib is that most people, especially because of his JLI run, think that he's kind of a joke. That he's not worth going back in time to kill in the exactly. And then he has to let potential allies think that of him, too. And that's I kind of love that. The, the story that they had about him on Justice League Unlimited, which is my favorite episode <sighs> of that series. So good. Is all about that, too. It's about him having to save the world, get no credit for it, because everyone is off, is off battling uh, Mordru. Mm -hmm. And there's like, oh, I love it, because there's this entire massive crossover event happening that barely registers as a story. And he's off doing his own thing and he saves the day and in the end all he gets is scolded by batman yep. and i love it i love those kinds of stories and the the fact that a character like this is sort of in that position that every upstart character gets at this point in their history they tried to give them an ongoing they tried to make this person a star it didn't work out as well as they wanted so how can we push them into a team book not only did he fit better as a team character in a way that he didn't, he's one of the iconic characters of the Justice League International era. Oh, absolutely. That him, him joining the team and him having a partnership with Blue Beetle end up being bigger. I mean, they're really two characters that are greater than the sum of their parts. That the two of them together make for such great stories and that both of them are kind of failed solo acts. They've never managed, I think probably, actually, yeah, it is true, Jeff Johns' run, the one that went into Giffen Me Day Mateus, 
Um, actually had a longer run than the the run with Dan Jurgens. Mm-hmm. I think he got about twenty five issues and then like thirty six issues. So he can he can exist successfully in short bursts. But in the end, we really want to see this guy hanging out with Fire and Ice and Beetle and Martian Manhunter. That that's the the place that we see as his natural home. You're exactly right. That is a perfect summation of the character. And you mentioned, you said that he's the one you think should get a movie. The news on the street is now that he's supposedly in development. Oh, I, I want to get excited really badly. I hope it's a, a sort of thing sort of like with Shazam, where it's happening off its own little separate thing, perhaps. I would think so. Because he is so not grim and gritty. I mean, no. he is so not equipped for that. Because he's, one, he's wearing bright gold. It's kind of hard to be grim and gritty when you're shiny, but I would be excited. I'd love to see a really fun standalone movie. If you wanted to start a universe off with a character that people don't really know that well, but is fun. Like most people outside of comic book fandom didn't know who Tony Stark was right. before 2008. And now everybody knows who he is. And in fact, he's actually more famous when he's not wearing the armor because of, of Robert Downey yeah, Jr. Absolutely. You could do the exact same thing with Booster here. It'll be interesting to see how they portray him. I mean, he's sort of got the, the Gordon Gecko love of greed, but without the you know ability to accomplish anything. And hopefully he won't end up in jail the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the character spotlight. I think you did a very nice summation of Booster Gold. Well done, oh, sir. Thank you. Thank you. You know what that leaves us with? This is it. This is the toughest moment. Folks, it's time for... Pwahaha Award. And this is the segment where Mike and I have to nominate what we believe to be the funniest moment in the issue. We have to discuss it, and only one of these folks is going to walk away with a coveted Bwahaha Award. Mike, you're the guest, unfortunately. So no. you get to no- nominate the first Bwahaha contender. What do you got? Oh, I've got to go with Guy Gardner in the dark, holding up bat ears on the side of his head. <laughs> just the, the childish look on his face. The fact that it's just, it's really wonderfully done. Uh, he's right at the front. He's actually kind of peering down like he's telling you a scary story. And he's, he just looks like such a dick. And he's, he's a child in that moment. And the little word bubble of, the little word bubble, hey, I'm just scratching my head. Like he's just gotta, he's gotta lie about it. But then the thought bubble of jerk. <laughs> and the is, word jerk is really tiny. <laughs> oh, I love it. He won't even say it loudly, afraid that even then Batman can hear him. <laughs> And the, and the the use of shadows by Kevin McGuire. At first, I thought it was the lighting or the coloring that makes this work, but really, it's it's the inking that makes this work. So Kevin McGuire and uh, Al Gordon on the inking did, did make those shadows so effective. That is a great moment. I, I gotta agree with you. That is really nice. Now, I did not go with the same moment. I've got a different one on page thirteen, where Booster knocks out ten. Oh, that's wonderful. That is a funny, as you mentioned it in your recap, or at least in the discussion later, where you don't even actually see the punch. You just get this great vertical panel of bop, and then she's down, and he's and he looks so apologetic. He's like, you know, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I love the little shrug. He's like, ah. Where I come from, the equality of the sexes is a given, so we can hit anyone. <laughs> oh, his body language in those three panels is great. Um, the first one, where he's got his hand behind his head, he's just kind of like, uh. It's a John Pertwee scratching the back of his head movie. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I love it. And one of the things that you do with comedy, you don't show the actual punch. You show the wind-up, and you show the aftermath. Yep. And then you just show bop <laughs> with stars on it, too. It's, it's great. I love it. All right. We're going to have to decide. I'm torn. Yeah, that's a good one. Are we, we going to have to go to rock, paper, scissors? Uh, I, that's a little hard on a podcast, I've got to say. I think we can pull it off. Okay. All right. 
rock, paper, scissors, scissors shoot, rock. Oh. Rock. Oh. I, I, I went fast. All right. I, I'm sorry. I got excited. We... <laughs> All right. Here we go. One more time. Okay. All right. Rock, rock paper, scissors, scissors shoot, scissors. scissors. You've got to be kidding me. Okay. Let's, Are let's, you hearing let's... me? Is there a delay? Is that what's going on? No. No. Um... All right. If, if it doesn't work this time. Okay. All right. All right. Rock, rock paper, paper, scissors, scissors. shoot, paper. rock. <laughs> I don't even. I, I think you shoot. won. You know what? I, I win. Uh, I'm the host. Okay. <laughs> oh. We're, we're going to give it to Booster Gold in 10. Congratulations, Booster. Enjoy your Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. And <laughs> Mike's just wrong, so that's what it boils down Yeah, I can live with that. <laughs> I think most people can. I think your uh, co-host Casey would even agree with me. I, I'm sure he would. <laughs> and, uh-huh. on, and on that note, Mike, it is time to say goodbye. Oh. Will you please tell the folks at home where they can find you on the internets? Or stalk you might be the better. Oh, I'd be happy if somebody was, was excited enough to stalk me at this point. I need the downloads. I have a couple of podcasts that I do with my tag team partner, Casey Doran. First one is Radio vs. the Martians. We like to brand it as the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> it's, there's le- I think there's less shouting, and we don't have Pat Buchanan, if that'll, that'll convince you to come on board. <laughs> That's, I'm always happy. It's a little less racist that way. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> so, seriously, it's a pop culture discussion show. We, uh, Casey and I have a couple of our friends on. We dissect a pop culture topic for an hour and a half. Uh, most recent one we did a couple months ago was Vigilante Fiction. We're talking like stuff like Dirty Harry, Death With, Death, ugh, Death Wish. Um, Death With is, is definitely, it's, it's a less popular, uh, adventure <laughs> in the, in the thing, but Death Wish and The Punisher. If you want to check that out, you can find it on radioversusthemartians.com. You can find all our episodes on there. Plus, uh, for the last year and, uh, I guess it's almost a year now. That is weird. Podcasta La Vista Baby, which is our now bi-monthly, not just quarterly, celebration of the cinematic legend of the bodybuilder turned 1980s icon, Mr. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And we Mr. always Governor, have a, like Mr. Governor, Governor Olympia. I thought it was the Governator. <laughs> the Governator Olympia uh, from <laughs> Future Killer Robot Man. So we basically do the same sort of stuff. We invite a rotating group of guests on. We go movie by movie. Uh, we just released an episode on his first starring role. Hercules in New York. It is not a good movie. And <laughs> we've also done episodes on Kindergarten Cop and The Running Man. You can find that on uh, podcastalavistababy.com. And this is actually a bit of an exclusive. I'm gonna. This is going to be the first place that I publicly announce this. But we're going to be doing another show that right now, maybe just once, maybe twice a year, probably just once a year, mm-hmm. called Hex and Violence. Ooh, where great name. Casey and, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Casey and I, well, I hope it's a lot of fun because we haven't done it yet. Um, <laughs> it could but, really uh, suck. It, it could be a nightmare. It could be it could be a terrible, terrible thing. It'd be like just the, focus the, on the movie. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> let's just let's just drive this into the ground right off the bat. Like the, so yeah. Hopefully, if it's terrible, you'll forget about this in a year. But uh, it's going to be uh, Casey and I talking about our shared love of the DC Comics Western antihero Jonah Hex. And right now, uh, we're looking about releasing an episode probably in July. Like I said, once or twice a year, and all of our shows are going to be available on iTunes, Stitcher, Radio vs. the Martians, and on whatever podcatcher that you use 
Well, I have to say, I've really enjoyed all the episodes of your series I've, I've listened to. Radio vs. the Martians is a exceptionally well-put-together show. It's oh, thank you. Really, I mean, the production values, the way you organize it, the topics, really, really great stuff. I mean, I put it mostly, mostly down to Casey, not you, but I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah, really I'm, well done. I'm the coattails. And Podcaster La Vista, again, I didn't think it was going to be something I was going to be into. And, dude, you have you have gained a listener, so oh, absolutely love you. it. Now, I have to ask you, uh, since we're coming towards the end of the show here, is, is this where I say, is the party over? Oh, because I'm the party pooper. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, uh, as you leave the embassy and apparently pocket a few of our pens, uh, I do apologize in advance. I have to inform you that as you step out of the embassy, your diplomatic immunity will expire. Oh. Therefore, you're going to once again be responsible for all of those unpaid parking tickets. And I did alert the Seattle local authorities where to find you, so I uh, hope you don't mind, and uh, good luck with that. I'm, I'm totally good for the tickets. Just uh, go through my personal representative, Casey Doran. <laughs> <laughs> good diversion. Good diversion. <laughs> well, folks, our thanks again to Mike Gillis for being on the show. You've been a wonderful guest. I mostly mean that. <laughs> Say goodbye to these nice people, Mike. Goodbye to these nice people, Mike. There we go. And, folks, we're going to do a quick podcast promo where we play a commercial for another show, hopefully not one of Mike's, and when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback. November 4th, 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kunz, the Tanagarians, and the Durlins, and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue. Tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Hey guys, this is Shag's daughter, the Precocious Princess. You guys are listening to my dad's Justice League International Wahaha Podcast. I've got a message for all you geeky dads out there. Happy Father's Day! All right, we're back from break, and a very special thanks to my daughter for that intro. That girl's got me wrapped around her finger. Now, before we get into your feedback, if you need a little more JLI in your life, and who doesn't, I tell you that every month, there's a couple new places you can check out. First off is the First Strike Invasion podcast, which is part of our Fire and Water podcast network. This is a podcast dedicated to the 1980s crossover Invasion, and this one's coming out of our Canadian embassy by our buddy Siskoid and Boss. Now, recently on episode number 7, they covered Justice League International number 22. So give that episode a listen, hear them celebrate the JLI, they fall in love with it, and then I want you to write in and argue with them about whether the JLI is iconic or not. Listen in, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Then, as I mentioned last month, Who's Who podcast, well, we've got a new episode coming out next week for Update 88. It'll be issue number 4. And in that issue, we're going to talk about Maxwell Lord, Oberon, and The Weird. So, a couple more places for some JLI. Now, also, I keep finding myself amazed that there's news to talk about with this series. Because I'm, I'm convinced this 29-year-old series, there shouldn't be any new news about it. However, there's some good stuff to discuss. 
If you're on Facebook and you're a nerd, you've probably seen come up in your feed recently an ad for a company called Geeks Crate. They offer a whole lot of nerd-related stuff. And just recently, they released a shirt with a giant image of the cover of Justice League number 1. It's awesome. It's uh, it, Back in the 90s, we used to call shirts like that mega print, where the printing is just takes up the majority of the shirt. It's huge. It's massive. And seeing that wonderful Kevin McGuire image you know, with Guy Gardner and everyone else looks fantastic. So if you want to check it out, it's geekscrate.com. Geeks is plural. Don't put in just uh, singular because it'll take you to a whole different site. Geekscrate.com. You can look up JLA Return to Greatness is the name of the shirt. It's awesome. And my thanks to Michael Bailey for the heads up on that. I've ordered my shirt. It should be here soon. I can't wait. And another bit of news is Back Issue Magazine. If you're not familiar with it from Tomorrow's Press, you don't know what you're missing. It's a fantastic magazine. It's written for people like us. It's all about the Bronze Age and like the 1980s comics. Oh, I love this magazine. Anyway, issue number 91 is scheduled to come out on August 17th, and it is referred to as the All Jerks issue, <laughs> starring Green Lantern that you love to hate, Guy Gardner. And they've got Namor in there and J. Jonah Jameson and Flash Thompson and a bunch of other folks. It's got featuring the work of Rick Buckler, Kurt Busiek, John Byrne, Steve Englehart, Keith Giffen, Alan Kupperberg, and many more. And it features an awesome cover image by Kevin McGuire with Batman and Guy Gardner. It's a different angle of the famous one punch. Really good. Thanks to Roger Pree for the heads up on that. Now, folks, it's time for your listener feedback from Justice League International Podcast episode number three and a segment I just had to call Justice Log. Now, as a reminder, over on social media, please use our hashtag, which is PoundFWPodcasts. That will help us find your comments. You can also tag us on Facebook or Twitter. On Twitter, our handle is the at sign JLI Podcast. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook under the name of the show. As I said earlier, we are all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. So, please, give us a shout-out. Now, remember, folks, if you are outside of the United States, please let me know, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. And you'll see one of those in just a second. First feedback we're going to cover are your iTunes reviews. And folks, these are so critical to help to raise the profile of the show and to help other JLI fans f- find the show to help build this community. And as a thank you for anyone that leaves an iTunes review, I'm going to read the entire review on the air. And the first one does come from one of our international embassies. It comes from our buddy Martin Gray, who does the Too Dangerous for Girl blog, and he just so happens to be at our Scottish embassy. It's entitled Bahav New World. It's like a play on Bwahaha and Brave. Very clever. So he goes on to write, If the phrase Bwahaha means anything to you, you're likely already a fan of DC's Justice League International Comics. If not, this review show is a perfect introduction, as hosts the Irredeemable Shag and guests from the podcasting and blogging landscape chat about the seminal superhero series. What was the issue's funniest moment? Did Batman punch Guy Gardner? How hot was, insert random female character here, and that does include Mrs. Wootenhofer. Love is lavished upon these stories of Keith Giffen and J.M. DiMatteis with the art of Kevin McGuire and company, and rightly so. This was a great series, and this is a, the podcast it deserves. <laughs> Thank you for that, Martin. We appreciate that. We got a nice iTunes review from Aaron Head Moss from the Headcast Network, which includes shows on Task Force X, Suicide Squad, G.I. Joe, the Will Payton Starman, Manhunter. Oh, great, great characters there over there covering. And his tagline is <laughs> he also made a little play on Bwahaha, fan Bwahaha Tastic. <laughs> He says, I love this version of the Justice League. Don't get me wrong, I love the Detroit League. I love what Morrison did with the JLA, and I love me some classic Justice League of America. But this version was my league. This is when I started reading comics. I started collecting in 1987, 1988, and it came across the JLI around issue 15 or 16 or so. I then had to backtrack and collect all the back issues, the entire run, and all the associated titles. Shag and Friends, and Ryan, do an excellent job of covering the series. I can't wait for the next issue of the podcast to show up so I can listen to Shag and his newest victim. Er, 
I mean guest, talk about the comic and other related news. Really can't wait for issue 13 and the crossover with the Suicide Squad to see how Shag and the guest handles that. Bwahaha. I highly recommend this podcast for fans of DC Comics, 80s comics, humor comics, action comics, or anyone with good taste. Until next month, make mine the Bwahaha podcast. Thank you, Aaron. We appreciate that. Then we heard from Jay Jones, who is from the Silver and Gold podcast and does a Captain Adam blog, Splitting Atoms. He says, no extreme justice, but a fun show anyway. If you were a fan of the 1980s Justice League International Bwahaha era comics, you owe it to yourself to give this show a listen. Shagging guests give the titles the appropriate love and attention they deserve. Their enthusiasm for the series is infectious, and you'll find yourself reaching for the Oreos with every listen. JLI is my Justice League, and I will never not listen to this show. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate that. And again, folks, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really appreciate it if you go out to iTunes, give us a review. It would really, really go a long way to help the show. Now, what follows are comments from our website, email, and various social media. Folks, the, the best place, if you want to leave comments on the show, is on our website. Just go to fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Look for the appropriate show. Go up there and leave some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Now, as I'm going through these comments, I'm just going to be sort of highlighting certain bits that you guys said, because there's no way I could read all the feedback I got on the show. We'd be here another two hours, and I'm sure you're already tired of listening to me. Let's move on. We heard from Bernie Elaida. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Sorry, Bernie. He says, I read JLI as it was coming out. JLI was responsible for me getting into comics. It wasn't that it was a comedy book. The hook was that it was a superhero comic that happened to be funny, too. It was a great balance between high drama and comedy. The comedy was well done and never broke the tension of the drama. It was hard to wait for each issue. I totally agree, Bernie. Heard from Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast. He says, excellent first two episodes. I love this book. I will forever seek out and collect any iteration of the team. I wish they would return to the DC line. JLI is perhaps one of the greatest comics of all time. Heard from my buddy Jeff Nettleton, and as usual, he wrote encyclopedia-length comments. In there, though, he had this bit where he goes, McGuire's skill with facial expressions really sells Juan Jenna's moments of s- and sacrifice. This wasn't long after Chernobyl, and that was an interesting period for me. I went through college on a Navy ROTC scholarship, and we followed the events very closely. Part of our training involved basic nuclear engineering study, so we understood the magnitude of what was happening. It was a very touchy time, as we weren't certain how this might affect the Soviet relations with the West. Might it move them towards aggression of the West, to offset the loss of resources? Luckily, it turned out to be a chance to prove humanitarian assistance, as we made a big note of the U.S. teams that were allowed to come in and help. It was a major stepping stone in following the Cold War. It also showed that writers were a bit wrong, as the Russians were way behind on nuclear decontamination technology in the U.S. had great expertise, especially in the wake of Three Mile Island. Then Jeff Nettleton addresses the question we brought up last time, which was, when did Mr. Miracle get invited to join the Justice League? Jeff goes back and forth with Tim Price and Ryan Daly, and folks, we are still not at a point where we have an answer to this question. When did Mr. Miracle get invited to join the Justice League? Because in Justice League number one, he just shows up. So if anyone is able to find anything before Justice League number one, please let us know. Then we heard from Chris Franklin, who's also part of the Firewater Podcast Network, and he has shows like Supermates and Power Records, and he just might show up on this show in the near future. He says, I'm with you guys. I would have loved if Captain Marvel could have stuck around. It's a shame he got taken away from the team, especially since Roy Thomas's plans never really went anywhere after the New Beginning miniseries outside of a story in Action Comics Weekly. Then he says later, always loved Blue Beetle's bug and desperately wanted a toy line to give us one to scale with a Blue Beetle figure with sliding seat, opening bottom hatch, a retractable zip line. The closest thing we got was a Batman dropship type thing from the Batman Returns toy line. Sigh. (laughs) Chris has obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this. (laughs) 
Then we heard from my podcasting life mate, Rob Kelly, also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows like the Film and Water Podcast, the Pod Dylan Podcast, Aquaman and Firestorm Podcast, the Who's Who Podcast, the Aquaman Shrine website. I mean, I swear, the guy never does anything but talk about comic books. It's just, it's sad. We're thinking about starting a support group for him, maybe a GoFundMe to get him out of the house. I'm not sure. Anyway, this is a great episode, Shag. I too fondly remember the Spock and Sulu gag. I love the idea of Batman engaging with pop culture. And with all the different segments and sound effects and whatnot, this show is taking on a real Dr. Demento vibe. Hmm. I don't really know if to take that as a compliment or not. That's a tough one. Heard from our buddy Rift, who's from the Australian Embassy. He says, a fun and enjoyable episode is always, Shag. Well done. Tim was a great guest. Even though I've never read any of these issues, your energy and the energy of the guests keep me coming back to find out what the team goes through next issue. Keep up the great work. Follow-up to that was from Paul Hicks, who's also from the Australian Embassy and the Waiting for Doom podcast. He says, I might be able to help you out with reading the issues. Look at that. Apparently, Australian people all live next to each other and are able to loan each other comics. How nice of them. Then Paul went on to refer to Rift as the Kilowog of the Australian Embassy. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Joe X, who says, Gorbachev was all over DC Comics in those days, with two dozen or so appearances. And then he says, going into Russia might have been easier for the Justice League, since the old JLA presumably had permission to operate there. I suppose so. Going for a no prize there. Her former buddy Ange, who does the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, hearing the coverage and looking at the sample pages of Justice League make me realize I was missing something special when this book was on the racks. Ange is foreign to this era of Justice League. He's learning about it through the show, and uh, hopefully he's picking up back issues, so we're glad to have you on board, Ange. Heard from Jimmy McGlinchey, who's in our Irish embassy. He says, uh, Irish embassy calling, and can you find something for Jack-O-Lantern to do? He's hanging around the embassy, moaning about Godiva being in the New 52 when he wasn't. If you can, see if Rebirth has any opportunities for him, would you? I appreciate it. <laughs> he says, you were discussing why the JLI did not appear in the Blue Beetle series until the Millennium Crossover. He says, I remember reading in the Blue Beetle that Len Wein was not fond of the Giffen DiMatteis portrayal of Ted in JLI, so that maybe he did not want to bring up the JLI into the book. Interesting. And he goes on to say, Silver Sorceress's color scheme, we talked about her uniform, how she doesn't wear silver. And he said, in the penultimate part of the breakdown storyline, when she's confronting Dream Slayer, she makes a comment that she may be colorblind, but she wasn't stupid. Unless she was being ironic, maybe that's why she went for the gold costume. <laughs> that would be hysterical if it's all because she's colorblind. And he says, honorable mention for the Boahaha Award should go to the reaction of the Rocket Reds, when Guy Gardner appears. The reaction was, we wanted to fight Superman or Batman. Not Guy Gardner again. It's priceless. Heard from Martin Gray again, from our Scottish Embassy. He says, it was great to have Tim as your guest. And he, he calls Tim my Dale Gunn, which I think is hysterical. Then he goes on to say, this was a great issue, and I love the alternate cover. What with the word balloon? And yeah, dialogue and word balloons on covers roll to the confrontation scenario. It was very much a 70s throwback. I guess the experiment didn't make the argument to roll out the covers throughout the line. He says, we did eventually see that the Silver Sorcerers had silver hair. So I guess that's something. Heard from Tim Price. He shared his Justice League International origin story with us. He says he started collecting in earnest by 1982, and the team books were his favorite, jumping in with Justice League Detroit. When that ended, he went straight into Legends and then into this Justice League. But this was his second year of college, and he worked a couple of part-time jobs to pay for his comics, because what else was he going to do? Justice League hooked him from issue one and actually drove him to start getting any past Giffen and Dimenteus comics you could find. And he says, I'm taking it as a challenge to only read the issues one month at a time. He means it with us along with the podcast, which I haven't done since they first were published. Oh, the agony! Thank you, Tim, for taking that challenge. That's interesting. If anyone else is reading along with us just one issue a month, let us know. 
heard from our buddy Jose Rivera. He says, so I'm listening to the latest Justice League International episode when Tim mentioned getting a comic collector's box, which then reminded me of the one I got in 1998 from a local comic shop. It was a DC Comics box, and it came with a poster and quite a few comics. And some of those comics were Green Lantern number 50, Catwoman number 1, and so on. He shared a picture of what some of the artwork was, and it would have had, uh, looks like, a, a, a John Bognadov drawn Superman, a Tom Grummet Robin, a Mike Waringo Flash, and then there was also Superboy and Steel and Batman. And Jose goes on to say, I've never seen it sold anywhere since that day, and maybe you or someone else knows where it came from or where it was distributed. I only ask because you once worked in a comic shop. You know, Jose, I have no idea where this came from, but I would love to hear if anyone out there remembers from about 1998-ish a, a DC comic short box you could buy, or maybe it's a long box, and to become a comic collector. It'd be fascinating to hear if, if anyone knows anything. Then we heard from DC in the 80s, which is an awesome site dedicated to 80s comics from DC, hence the name. They posted the original art for a Justice League International t-shirt that came out back in 1991. It's a, it's a fun shirt. It says Class of 91, and it's got Martian Manhunter holding up the, this platform with all the JLI members standing on the platform, and several of them are falling off like they're all unbalanced. Mr. Miracle's falling, Oberon's falling, Nort's falling. Batman and Guy Gardner are the only ones not off balance. And my thanks to Michelle Fee for pointing out that post to me. Heard from Christopher Luke, and he posted a picture of Justice League International number three. He says, reading tonight with my four-year-old son, and he loved it. Thought it was very funny. You know what, Christopher? That is parenting done right, sir, and you win the Happy Father's Day Award. Good job. Heard from Dean Jones, and he says, this is how viral marketing works. Mike Gillis mentions that he's going to be on Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. I like Justice League International. Listen to it. They name-dropped to the Waiting for Doom Podcast, a Doom Patrol podcast, which I'm now subscribed. Look at that, Dean. And now you're mentioned on the Justice League International Podcast. Pretty amazing. Sean Corey from our Canadian embassy, he says that I made him spend money. Apparently, he went out and bought the first four volumes of the Justice League International trades after listening to the first two episodes of this show. Awesome. So glad I could empty your wallet, Sean. Now, if you're wondering, folks, there are six trade paperbacks out there of Justice League International. I recommend you go pick all of them up. It makes for reading very convenient. They also, uh, once you get past issue 24, they start working in the Justice League Europe issues, so it becomes one nice reading experience. And if you buy all six of them, it will include everything up to Justice League America number 35 and Justice League Europe number 11. Not bad. Our buddy Brad Lee Null was posting some Justice League International images on Instagram. Thank you for that. We appreciate that. Heard from Dr. G of Nerdology from the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, and he posted uh, to us a photo from a convention. It's of these cosplayers. One is a, a guy dressed as Guy Gardner and a girl dressed as Ice, and they have a baby with them in a stroller, and it, the baby's in a Green Lantern outfit, and I'm pretty sure the baby's supposed to be Chip, you know, the Chipmunk Green Lantern. It's absolutely adorable. Our buddy Dale Russell asked, when is the Justice League International Hero Points crossover? Well, if you're not familiar, and I don't blame you, I have a podcast called the Hero Points Podcast. We only do about one episode a year, but it basically celebrates the DC Heroes role-playing game. What he's asking is, are we going to do any Justice League International role-playing thing? And Believe it or not, Dale, there is a crossover in the works where we would cover the Justice League International sourcebook for the DC Heroes role-playing game. I don't know when that's going to be, but we are talking about it. So we're in negotiations, Carly. Heard from Brian Hughes. He mentioned the air breaks moment from the Ernest movie and the Justice League comic we talked about last month, me and Tim. He goes, it actually originates with a Warner Brothers cartoon with Bugs Bunny. And he gave us a link, and it's for a cartoon called Hair Lift, and it's in the last 30 seconds. And I'll be darned, it is clearly what the Ernest movie based it on. Obviously, Ernest was supposed to be an homage to that, so very cool. Thank you, Brian. 
heard from Luis Mayorgas. I'm sure I mispronounced that. I'm terribly sorry, Luis. This is listening to you and thinking you could do a spinoff only of reading all the JLI Batman lines with a Christian Bale voice. <laughs> I don't do the best Christian Bale, but that would be funny to hear someone do. Heard from our buddy Andrew in Belfast from our Irish embassy, and he says uh, he was brought up on the 1980s DC reissues in the United Kingdom, and our podcast really has him addicted to rereading. Awesome. And he also pointed out, asking if anyone noticed, Ted Cord appeared in DC Rebirth. Very, very excited to see where that goes, folks. Heard from Brad Dade. He says he loves the theme music on our podcast. It has a real retro feel similar to Michael Bailey's views from the long box. His great 80s vibe. Well, Brad, very clever ears on you there, because actually the theme song for this show was recommended to me by Michael Bailey, and very purposely has sort of a Mike Post feel to it, so thanks. Heard from Justin Steiner. He says, finally got to the second episode of Just League International Podcast today. It was very enjoyable. Fun to hear my name in the feedback section, too. Look at that, Justin. He ended up in this feedback section as well. Smart move, sir. John Wilson from the Avengers Inspiration Podcast, he, he posted, on, over on Twitter, he posted some images of Batman from the Just League International issues, and it's essentially uh, panels of Batman telling Guy Gardner to shut up, which is pretty awesome. He also pointed out that in the New 52, in the Justice League of America comic, in number 11, there was a nice shout-out to the Justice League International era, when Stargirl was carrying Martian Manhunter, and she kind of made a reference to some, I think it was eating cookies, so, very cool. Kichi Baker posted over on Twitter, he says, uh, Justice League International has something for everyone, right? And he posted a panel Essentially, this panel works out to just be a picture of Big Barda. Uh, it's her bottom, uh, her butt, in a yellow bikini from Justice League International uh, Annual Number 2. Thank you for that, Keith. And I, I truly do mean thank you for that. It was a very nice picture. John Hicks. Oh, John Hicks. I'm so jealous of you. He is over on Twitter making me feel bad and bragging. He posted some original art that he has purchased over the years. He actually has the opening splash page to Justice League Number 3, the page of the Champions of Angor and Colonel Harjavati. He has the original page of that. And then, from Justice League Number 4, he has the original page, the, the issue Mike and I covered today, of the Ace robot exploding. Wow! Really nice collection, John. Very impressed. Her buddy Lucien DeSaris is great episode. Now thanks to Shy, my next comic issue search is for the Firestorm variant cover. Now you may remember last episode we talked about that. There was a Justice League number three variant cover and a Firestorm number 61 cover. Both of them were labeled with Superman comics. Well, that provided some conversation from a few folks. Calum Nauer posted over on Twitter that he owns both the variant covers for Justice League number three and Firestorm number 61. He, he sent it, put up pictures of both of them. And in fact, he's got his Justice League number three CGC graded. Impressive. Then Michael Bailey from the Views from the Long Box podcast has forever earned my thanks. He and I are old friends, and he heard the episode where I talked about how I didn't have the Firestorm cover, and he was nice enough and went out and actually bought it for me. Thank you, Mr. Bailey. That was incredibly kind of you. So after, gosh, 29 years of wanting this issue of Firestorm, I now own issue number 61, the variant cover, and my Firestorm collection is now complete. I have every Firestorm comic book. This was the only one I was missing. So thank you, Michael. I really appreciate that. We also got lots of support and some nice comments from other folks, including Van Z, Dallas Gibson, The Blot, and Perp. Uh, both those are Twitter names. Next, I want to read something from Matthew T. Cody. First off, I owe him an apology. Last episode, I read the iTunes reviews, and I mentioned that there was a set of reviews from Darren and Ruth Sutherland. I was mistaken. I just assumed that that particular iTunes handle belonged to them. Turns out, no, it belonged to Matthew T. Cody. He wrote a very nice iTunes review with lots of Star Trek jokes, so I sincerely apologize for that. He mentioned that he thought Tim did a great job last episode, and he would love to hear Tim do a Blue Beetle podcast based on the 1980s series, and I echo that. 
And Matthew Cody, he's sort of involved with this next bit. Folks, a couple episodes ago, I created an award called the Double Stuff Award. And it goes out to folks that either go above and beyond to promote either this podcast or the Justice League International in general, or just do something amazing involved with the Justice League International. And Matthew, I'm sorry, you did not win the Double Stuff Award this month. However, your wife did. That's right, folks. Heather Cody, the wife of Matthew Thomas Cody, is amazing. She took a chest of drawers and she redecorated them with pages from the Justice League International comic. This thing is gorgeous. If you uh, if you're on Facebook or Twitter, look up Justice League International Wahaha Podcast. About uh, a few weeks ago, you'll find some posts of this chest of drawers. They took pages from the comic, got them all attached so the drawers look great, the top looks great. She redid the whole dresser. It looks really amazing. And uh, I got to say, Matthew, you are a lucky guy. She's the keeper, pal. All right, and now we're going to move on to folks that were kind enough to share the Justice League International on their social media timeline, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. And I, folks, I realize what I'm about to read is a very long list of names. However, these folks showed their support and promoted the show on their own social media. That you know, whether it be shared it or retweeted it, whatever they they took time out of their day to help promote the show. And I feel like it's really important we recognize these folks. So I'm going to read these. It's about 50 names. So buckle in. We're going to go through these as quick as possible. But I we are sincerely appreciate. Aaron Anderson, Al Sedano, Andrew and Belfrast, Ange, Barry Allen, Between the Pages, Carlos Olomida, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Christopher Warden, Closeout Comics, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Butnick, Danilin, David A. Scuderes, Dale Dale, Derek Crabb, Dread, Eduardo Escobar, Fanholes Podcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Jared West, Jonathan Brown, Jose Rivera, Keechi Baker, Con L, Cord Industries, Luke Dobb, Martin Gray, Matthew Thomas Cody, not Guano Man, Paul Hicks, Pietro Blaxamoff, Rift, Rob Kelly, Robert Lewis, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Sin, The Hammer Strikes, Tim Price, Tony D, Trick or Treat Radio, Tricker Talk, Two True Freaks, Van Z, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Now, if I missed anyone, if you promoted the show or you left us a comment and I missed it, just drop me a line. Let me know, folks. There's a lot of ways you can reach us. Again, go to our website, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave a comment on the show. You can hit me on Facebook. You look for JLI Podcast or Just League International Bahaha Podcast. On Twitter, the handle's at JLI Podcast. And then our email address is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks to all of you for the support of the Justice League International podcast, folks. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Please, keep those cards and letters coming. My thanks again to Tim Wallace for appearing in Episode 3 that we discussed in the feedback section of the show, and my thanks to Mike Gillis for joining us on this episode. Please be sure to check out their own online efforts. And come back next month, folks, when we cover Justice League number 5. It's the famous one-punch issue, and we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Sorry, folks. You're just going to have to wonder for the next month. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Shag, and this has been the JLI Podcast. You want to make something of it?